back to Strictly Come Hamster. My name is Joe Ford, and as ever, I can't be asked to do any more of this introduction, so I'm going to hand you straight over to my co-host, Mr. Rod Brown. Hello, Rod. Hello, Joe. Good evening, and good evening to our fantastic guests. So, I thought we'd had enough of controversy after we did Jody Series 12 and we did Season 22. I thought we need something a bit calmer, a bit more stay, something where everybody agrees. So we picked Series 2 with David Tennant because <laughs> obviously everybody loves that, doesn't it? Oh, my God, did we get some comments? I would say mixed. <laughs> mixed. He said, should we do comments? And I was like, yeah, of yeah. course. Then oh, they my... started flying in and he was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't say they're all glowing. They're mixed. But to help us sort out our ood from our absorbalofts, uh, we've got two very special guests here today. They're going to help us decide which of our stories is going to lift that Lucretian glitter ball. And usually we send them home to Peace Pottage if they don't. But today we're going to send them to a parallel earth from which they're absolutely never, ever, ever going to return, are they? <laughs> ever, never. So let's say hello to our two guests. Let's start with Mark. Hello. It's great to be here. Hello, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. Um, I have, yeah, I've enjoyed watching back series two. I've not actually seen it for quite a while, so it was very interesting coming back to some of these episodes. He's keeping his powder dry there, just interesting. Even I don't know, you know. <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah. That's good. Keeps it fresh. And Sai, a voice new to the podcast. I know, I've never been on this before. How exciting. <laughs> You are now officially part of the Ham Fam. How oh does my it feel? God. Oh, I, I've waited for this moment for so long. Oh. I, excuse me, I refuse to make your page on the incoming hamster website any longer, for God's sake. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Mr. Seihart and Mr. Mark Rawlins are joining us. So we are in for a very long podcast today. So we apologise in advance. We're doing 10 episodes, which we've never braved 10 before. Um, but obviously, as we usually do on Strictly, before we get into the stories themselves, we just want to get a feel for what everybody thinks about the season as a whole. But rather than kind of go into too much detail, I'm just going to ask each of you to give me three words that sum up your overall feeling <laughs> about the season as a whole. Sai is looking very concerned, so I'm going to start yeah. with you, Sai. No one's been able to okay. prep for this, that's why. Okay, no, absolutely. <laughs> right. Three words. Three words. Confident. Love. Yep. And interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Which you can take either way. Mark. Uh, okay, well, the three words that came to mind immediately... Uh, smug. <laughs> oh, ouch! Mismatched uh, and tragic. Oh, a, a mixture there. Okay. After Sai said his three words, I was going to say those three words describe you, and actually now Mark said is those three words describe <laughs> you. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you better be careful. What word do you pick then, Joe? Smug and tragic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Me. You, go for it. Okay, I am going to say assured, but inconsistent, and bitch fest. That's two well, words. That definitely but... describes you. Then. Oh, well, I will explain <laughs> it. Uh, and I am going to go with RTD, because I 
I'm having that as a word now. Family and fun. Hey, that's a that's a lot of very different words there. Mm. Yeah, I think there's going to be a bit of debate tonight. So before we get into round one, let's get some of the comments from our fabulous HamFam audience. Now, we're going to do it slightly differently tonight in that our guests are going to read out the comments of the about the overall season. So let's start with Mark Rawlins. Okay, yeah. So some of the comments that have come in. So we've got uh, Dylan Reese. Uh, he says, Doctor Who was back. And not only that, it was a huge confident success. Being a fan at this time was like a fever dream. A fever dream? Wow. Yeah. He's a very old fella. <laughs> uh, we... Jones says, weakest of RTD's initial <laughs> seasons. A combination of being difficult second album and the next two seasons being so strong. It's not all bad, just not as brilliant as what surrounds it. Okay. Uh, well, uh, E. Tapalak uh, says, stunningly dreadful. While series one was hardly <laughs> perfect, the unearned smugness of the Tennant Rose pairing, their chemistry is non-existent, plus the hack scripts were unbearable. Carried on watching for a few more years, but my enthusiasm never recovered. I have so never heard anyone call anything suddenly dreadful except me about Stephen Moffat's work. <laughs> <laughs> what a what drama goes round comes round. Yeah. <laughs> Daniel Rawnsley says, oh. I adore series two. It's full of high camp, high emotion, kisses to the past, and possible, possibly the best base under siege story ever. I'm also fully in the Ten Rose love story camp precisely because it's mired in the arrogance, hubris and slightly toxic dynamic of two attractive people who clearly love each other a little too much, but are also fun and charming enough for you to come along for the ride. It all plays off beautifully in that gut-wrenching cataclysmic finale, which delivers the ultimate punishment. Not death, but solitude. That's a bit dark. Jeez. You know, I notice about these comments, you know, these overviews, it's like chalk and cheese. Yeah. <laughs> There's no two people that agree on anything. No. Very divisive, yeah. Well, I've got uh, Paul Quinn. And oh, God. Said... Oh, you know, he's always going to be divisive. <laughs> oh, no. Here we go. Mostly Never. a dog of a season. A dog? Weak... <laughs> Weak opener, brainless second episode, weird semi-nonce fourth episode with tenants shocking fake drunk acting school reunions good impossible planet is tops but satan pip collapses and takes the rest of the season with it wow so clearly he's Ooh. loving it oh. mm -hmm. did he call the girl in the fireplace semi-nonce no he called david yes. tennant in that episode <laughs> semi-nonce uh well i've got the lovely stephen b who Aww. says millions of not we still think quite rightly of this as doctor who at its zenith will they won't they mixed in with family friendly laughs scares and spectacles rtd brings doctor who into the mainstream here in a way that surpasses series one and arguably series four and tenant and piper my god if you can't admire their all-time levels of tv chemistry then you've lost sight of what great telly is to people who aren't nerds like us. A triumph. Thank I you, think Steve. he's got a point there that we're going to come yeah. to this quite a bit. Yeah. This, this TV for nerds that aren't us. Because I think there is a big difference between TV for nerds and TV for non-nerds. Mm -hmm. And we'll come to that. He wasn't so lovely, you know, when he was talking about season 22, which is coming out in a few <laughs> weeks. 
Uh, well, uh, strap in. I've got Fraser Gregory here. How long is this podcast going to be? Series 2 is excellent. It has a higher number of excellent episodes than any other RTD series, but sadly has a few clunkers too. Why is it not regarded higher? Probably because the Tenth Doctor and Rose's relationship, which is unbelievably cloying if watched in isolation, but actually had a point and a purpose when taken as a whole along the length of the series. RTD is setting them up for a fall, and boy does he like to make his Doctor suffer. Tennant hits all the right notes in his first run out. He's effortlessly, effortlessly charming, energetic and likeable, without any of the hair-quivering baggage that will come to define his era it's brilliant apart from the blowjob paving slab that should be shot with shit <laughs> should be shot with shit yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it will come to no surprise okay. to anybody at all that my opinion is actually the complete reverse of every single point that he made there <laughs> tenant at his most is. confident uh, no he's not mm. um the best season of rtd no it ain't <laughs> <laughs> Good old Fraser. Yeah. Jason Thompson says, Us old guard know full well that Doctor Who can change its lead and carry on. But in um, 2006, a production team fresh from the relief of finding that, yes, Doctor Who does work on primetime TV in the 21st century, now has to deal with the tension of whether a modern audience will accept regeneration and the change it brings. In this season, they were shown that, that they would. And so Doctor Who's longevity in the new era was assured. Oh, he's very smart. Yeah, he is. So that takes us through to round one. So this is the round where we're going to start discussing the stories. We Obviously, we've got a minimum of two stories each that we're going to discuss. And you have got to cajole and convince the rest of us that your views are completely right and accurate. Um, so let us start with Sai. Sai, pick a story from the turn and tell us whether you're going to champion it or condemn it to a parallel world. Look at him. He's rubbing he's, his hands. He's rubbing yeah. his hands. <laughs> let's start big. Oh. And let's go for Fear Her. Oh. And I am going to champion and champion this story because Madness. I think it gets <laughs> a really bad rap because I watched this at a really awful family wedding. And uh, when I say awful, I mean really awful. But I took all the kids off for an hour to go and watch Doctor Who. And these were kids from age four to 12. And they absolutely loved it. So whatever we think, one thing it got right was it got the kids. Can I just the... say, though, you, know, you did say the wedding was absolutely awful. Yes. So that might not be a good sort of way of saying fear hair is a terrible alternative. Fingers on lips, Joe. Uh-huh. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Secondly, it's got the greatest TARDIS landing gag that has ever been seen in Doctor Who. And I think the episode is worthwhile just for that, of it landing between two big boxes and they can't get out and have to rematerialize again. I think that is absolutely brilliant. And thirdly, and this is unexpected, I think this is um, Rose and the Doctor at their very best in this season. I think they are lovely together here. The chemistry between them is really, really good. Rose has to deal with losing the Doctor, which sets us up for the finale. And she 
she has a moment of panic. What am I going to do without him? And then she grabs an axe and goes and smashes down a door and takes on the villain. You know, we can say there are lots of problems with this episode. Um, the girl who plays Chloe Webber is not brilliant. But watching it back for the first time in years, she was better than I remember. However, Hugh Edwards was worse than I remember. <laughs> so you might be a great newscaster, but you're not necessarily a great actor. And maybe you needed someone else to do this. So I'm just going to say, fear her, not as bad as its reputation. Oh, and I said, bravo, it sir. So a controversial start. Should we well, go? To the... Gonna start high. Should we go to the comments and see if they all agree? Fraser Gregory, Mister Controversy, <laughs> says nothing wrong with this one. It's perfectly decent, it's if not spectacular. Look at domestic abuse with Rose getting a share of the day saving, not deserving of the criticism it gets. Keep it. Michael Storm says, a run-of-the-mill episode that fails to live up to its potential. The fingers-on-lips scene is utter cringe and shows Ten's decline into being Arnold Rimmer as he was in Red Dwarf 1 and 2. Dylan Reese said, this was the one story of the season I watched with non-Who fans, and boy was that a mistake. Bless him. <laughs> Not a bad script, just badly executed. Might have made a better Sarah Jane adventure. Uh, Darren Lit Roundall says, I've always looked more favourably on Fear Her than everybody else. I think Rose and Ten are well characterised for once. The funny TARDIS gag. Sorry. I like the Doctor being in investigator mode, so that wins me over. Brendan Jones says, manages to feel mundane in execution and tackles difficult themes in a shallow way. Stephen B, Fear Her proves that there is still a flaw in every Persian rug and that even cathedrals have gargoyles. Still, there's always one line of genius comedy. You, ju you just took a council axe from a council van and now you're digging up a council road. Go on, everybody say it. I'm reporting you to the council. To the council. Thank you. By the way, Joe, was that your Australian accent or was that Shut a up, Cockney you. Rose accent? <laughs> I'm lost. Jack Coyer said, Rose Tyler's horns of Nymon. Our <laughs> companion must step up as the Doctor has been poorly sketched. See what he did there? The 3D scribbles and the TARDIS were cool at the age of 10. Does any new, new Who story aim at a younger audience? Two problematic dads this series. The white one gets a redemption. Uh, Daniel Knight gives us one word. Meh. James H says, I actually really like this one. I know I'm in the minority, but this is such a charming story that I can't help but enjoy it. He's as much of a contrary bugger as Fraser and Paul Quinn. <laughs> John Bensalia says, one word. I'm getting all the one word ones here and we'll finish with that. Whip it shit. That's two words. <laughs> right, he's put it as one. Yes. <laughs> so, Mark, are you are you won over by size wonderful uh Praise for fear. Oh, I'm not. I'm sorry. <laughs> I have this down as a as a reject. Of a, I'm afraid. Um, Chloe Webber. She's supposed to be this like scary child, you know, um, scaring everybody, freaking everyone out. She's not. She's just some. She's just a bad actress trying to remember <laughs> her lines most of the time. She doesn't have. I don't know. There's nothing about her. That is, I think there's not any atmosphere in the story. It's sort of filmed quite flat. It's like directed quite flatly. It feels like a sort of a daytime soap. Um, the scribble effect is cool, though. I 
that is the one thing that I do like in this. When Rose opens the garage door and that thing comes out, that was I thought that, that was is quite only impressive. three seconds of the episode though. I know. Yeah, that that is all that's going for it. I'm afraid. Um, and the mum, she's she's doing her best in it. Like the the actress playing the mum, she's doing her best, but just what she's given, it's just not. It's just quite flat. <laughs> like one of Chloe Webber's drawings. <laughs> <laughs> it's two D. No, it, no it, on first watch as well. I just I was like, no, it just feels like a bit of a a filler episode, a cheap end of season. We just there's just this is like a a stepping stone before we get to the finale. Uh, just a bit of a breather, and there's, uh, there's just nothing really going for it. So that's a no then from Mark Joe. Uh, yeah, it's a no from me as well, and I hate to be predictable, um, but I have actually got as my first point. We haven't compared notes, I promise, but I did say flat direction for the most part. I think this is this is Euros Lin, isn't it? This is the guy that brought us Girl in the Fireplace and Tooth and Claw. I mean, everyone has their off days, right? It, it is really dreary looking. It, I don't know what it felt like to me. I wrote down, it's like someone's gone to a housing estate for a school project and done a filming <laughs> job. That's what it feels like. It's like there's no money at all. It's like, you know, what we would do, we took a, a iPhone round and filmed this thing. Um, I don't think there's any chemistry at all between mother and daughter. And I think that's a really important relationship. It's supposed to be showing it to be dysfunctional and then coming together at the end. But it's clearly two actors that have never met before in their life trying to struggle their way through this script. And like you said, Mark, the actress playing Chloe Webber, I mean, she could join the bruise of the damned from the Moffat era, as far as I'm concerned. Imagine if she'd been in Poltergeist, for God's sakes, you know? Yeah, you need someone with that sort of bit more creepiness about them, a bit yeah. more. Yeah. Do you remember that girl from Pole Guys? She'd be amazing in this. Imagine her there up at the window. <laughs> um, and my last point, and what I really don't like about this episode and this season as a whole, because it happens in Tooth and Claw as well, and it happens in The Idiot's Lantern, is there's this weird glorification of, like, Britain in this season, which uh, maybe it's because I'm very cynical about Britain these days. You know, the Tories are in charge and we're all a bit embarrassed to be living here uh, post-Brexit. But this the whole thing about the Olympics, it, one, it makes it feel dated, but two, all of this, you know, feel the love. <laughs> and then she blows the stone away. And, oh, it's just agonising. Um, I know everyone did come together at the Olympics and it was an amazing event and all of that. But really, I think that's the last time we were proud to be in this country. So... I don't know. Yeah, I think Mark's right. It feels cheap. There's a lot of good stuff in it. I like the council guy. I think Rose is brilliant in this, like you said, Si. But I, I just think, it, yeah, it is the most mundane episode of the year. And for that reason, it's going. So it's going before it even gets to me. Um, so I'm superfluous, but I'm still going to have my say. And I supported, bear in mind, I've supported Megalos. I supported Time Lash. But this and the timeless is, children. And the timeless children. Yeah. But this is just a step too far. <laughs> it's just, no, it's shocking. It this is, is too much. much. Too, the line has been crossed. Um, first thing for me is the tone. RTD established the tone meeting where everyone comes together, all the production heads come together and agree on a tone. God knows what they were doing this day because there is just no consistency between the production. So I think of one pivotal scene where Chloe is lying on the bed and the doctor's talking to the eye soulless through her. 
there's zero atmosphere in that scene. The sunlight is streaming through the windows, which feels very odd. Murray's music, I love Murray Gold, but his music in that scene is so out of sync. It's light and frothy. And just everything just feels disconnected. It should feel like you said before, it should feel quite dark and menacing and brooding. This is a pivotal scene. One thing, I'm going to pick a Stephen Moffat episode, but one thing I think of Night Terrors, of which is a similar... Don't you I please ought- use Night Terrors as a way of comparing to this. Well, I am going to because Night Terrors is dark and moody. You think of the scenes in the boys' bedroom, everything's very, very dark. Whereas here we've got sunlight shining in, it just feels very inconsequential. Um, the other thing about the, the tone is I don't think the abusive father line plot fits with the rest of what's going on. It just feels very tacked on. It feels like we need an issue in here, guys, or a monster. We've had the scribble monster, which is good, but the abusive father just doesn't, it's too on the nose. When he starts shouting, I'm coming to get you, it feels like a fairy tale ogre. It doesn't feel like this is talking about domestic abuse. So it kind of minimizes it a bit that for me and just feels too it's too pointed and you think about the terror in the previous episode where you've got the beast talking to toby in in toby's room that's so chilling and here you've got this god-awful drawing of a father shouting i'm coming to get you ready or you should have added ready or not at the end of it it was just horrible so that's my first reason the second reason i think there's so many wasted opportunities here at the beginning of it you get the old lady who senses menace that doesn't go anywhere. That just stops. You think that's going to go somewhere. It doesn't. Oh, isn't she brilliantly awful? She's though. great. She I don't awesome. know who you are, sweetheart, but thank you. Oh, she's <laughs> terrible. Then you've got the neighbours and the council workers arguing, which is almost like a proto-midnight because they're all blaming everybody else. And it has got that kind of slight midnight vibe to it. But again, that goes nowhere at all. Um, and then obviously you've got the, the doctor being taken out of the story. Uh, so Rose is there to, to lead us through. But it just, again, it just falls flat. She just digs up the ship, fl- throws it in the flame. That's the end of it. It's just very weak. Uh, and the biggest wasted opportunity for me is uh, Nina Sosanya, who's the mother. I've always thought she's a brilliant actress. Jeez. I would actually, I would have her down as a potential doctor. I think she's got something about her that she's got real star quality. But in here, she's just totally, totally wasted. She looks Bored. She does look bored. And then I've got a long list, which I won't bore you with, but I've got a long list of cringe <laughs> factors. So we've got the Terry Nation School of Naming. It's an isolated creature. We'll ah! call it the Isolus. <laughs> There's some terrible oh, Now I've realised that, I want to put it through. <laughs> There's some terrible acting in here. The fingers on lip scene is just awful. The plot gaps. Um, Chloe imprisons the Doctor and the TARDIS because she thinks they're going to stop her. Rose stands there and tells her, I'm going to stop you, and she just lets her go. That's because it's convenient for the plot. The whole Hugh Edwards bit, like you said, Joe, about talking about love and hope and support. Oh, awful, although Hugh's been cancelled now. You have no soul, Rod. Nah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and then Hugh Edwards talks about how terrible it is that everyone's gone from the stadium. And then the next minute, he's talking about how wonderful the Olympics are. It's like, what? And that even whole the... bit at the end is just, oh. that is probably the nadir of New Who, isn't it? It's like, Bob, Bob you're back. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, where are you, Bob? Oh, no, we're without all hope. <laughs> and then the flame, the flame carrier comes forward. He collapses to the ground. Does the doctor look after him or yeah, care for him? He no, he just picks up the flame and runs on. He can die. It's fine. I've oh. got my moment. Yeah. Exactly. 
And then finally, I, I'm no, you shouldn't knock the production, but it's supposed to be summer and everyone's breath is showing. It's, it's very, very clearly cold. done. It's very, very cold, even at the end. So for multiple reasons, it's out of here. You really thought about that one, didn't you? Oh, <laughs> it was shocking. Fear her is the first to go. What a surprise. Oh. Mr. Rawlins, we will come to you for your first choice. Hey, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna get this one out of the way. I am gonna talk about school reunion to go. What? <laughs> Sorry, we're supposed to keep okay. our powder dry, aren't we? Please proceed. Sorry. <laughs> Astonishing. So, okay, I realise. See, Sarah Jane comes back. Us as fans, we love that. And for non-fans, it's showing, you know, what happens to companions that are left behind. It's the first time that this uh, this occurs in, in, in the series. Um, but putting all of that stuff aside, and our love for Sarah Jane and, and not the nostalgia of that, what is the actual storyline here? The Krillotane stuff is just nothing, really, is it? Um, it's... From the, from the moment you see Anthony Head in the school, you know he's the bad guy. There's not much mystery going on there. The plot just keeps having to stop just for all these Sarah Jane moments. And I, I think there could have been a better cohesion of the this, this storyline in the school, this adventure, and the whole Sarah Jane stuff. Like, the Krillotanes are flying around outside, outside the moon. They He's got to fly outside. Why all the Sarah Jane stops happening and all the explanation? They're all waiting outside there. Anthony Ed's crouching on that building, waiting for their plot to start. Why we have all these lovely <laughs> moments, which are nice, and it is, it is great to see, but it's just... I just think there should be a bit more to the story, and, it, and it's over just like that. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't know. As I go back, it's great. When I, when I think about the story, and I want to watch it i'm like yeah it's great to see sarah jane but actually what yeah what is the story what is this it's you you you're left with like a quarter of a sarah jane adventure story maybe with all the krillotane stuff and i don't think the krillotanes are that great um and i don't think the cgi has held up for them very much um so i'm sorry it's not it's not an outstanding story for me wow did i just say hugh edwards was cancelled i think mark <laughs> needs to be cancelled i'm just like okay. as an overall story I just don't think it's... Did you notice how all three of us were out. staring at you blankly yeah, whilst you were saying all of that then? Jonah Rose bitching out and then they make up this. It just always has to just stop for the... You know, I think that they, they could have all been that and a, a decent sort of story in the background as well. Interesting. I kind of get what you're saying because I'd never thought about it that way before. Sorry, I know we're going to the comments. But how one plot does have to stop for another one to continue and you do jump back and it's only right at the end that the two of them come together. Yeah, still fantastic though. Sorry. So Jason Thompson <laughs> actually knocks back all of your uh, comments there straight away because he knew exactly what you were going to say <laughs> and says, this is by far my favourite. I've seen baffling criticism saying that if you take out all the stuff with Sarah Jane, the story is a boring aliens want to rule the universe plot. But Sarah Jane is the story. It's about what happens to former companions. It's also about Rose discovering she's not the first and what happens when you stop travelling with the Doctor. 
uh, Stephen B also has something to say to you, Mark. The plot isn't the point. It's all about the characters and giving them room to work through the emotions of travelling with the Doctor. There can't be a single one of you who prosecutes this <laughs> and has a beating heart in their chest. <laughs> <laughs> I like kind of suspected it, if I'm honest. It's like we timed <laughs> this, isn't it? <laughs> Jack Coyer says this brings Rose back home to find her life overtaken by Doctor Who's past. A companion torn away from her doctor who struggles to make a new life for herself. I wonder where this is going. Elizabeth Sladen is fantastic as always. Luke Malloy says makes me feel like a kid. It's gloriously fun. And Dan Hollingsworth says the return of Sarah Jane still makes me a soppy git. Daniel Knight, my favourite, favourite Modern Who episode. Liz Sladen is brilliant in this bittersweet exploration of the relationship between Doctor and Companion. Dylan Reese has a glorious reunion and great examination of the Companion role. Oh, here he comes, Fraser Gregory. Just for what it gives us, nostalgia, a fresh start for an old favourite and the joy of having K-9 back, this story would ride high. Being a well-paced, fun story with a great villain just pushes it higher. Well, thank you, Fraser. Lucy McCall says an utter joy. Sarah Jane is back and better than ever, and she's brought K-9 with her. The romantic bickering gets a bit much, but on the other hand, it does give Rose the knowledge that others were before her. Anthony Head is fabulously evil, going from slimy and sinister to scenery-chewing rage. The moment where he and the Doctor face off across the swimming pool made the hair stand up on the back of my neck. K-9 is still a very good dog, and Kenny has his moment of triumph and his reward for having missed the chips. Is Kenny the fat kid? He is. Oh, he's so annoying, isn't he? the school! He <laughs> <laughs> was oh, Kenny! Finally, someone that agrees with you. John Bensalia. Flimsy tale. Anthony Head is given zilch to do, while Rose's petty jealousy makes this more of a chore than it should be. Michael Storm says a bit of a letdown for me, with Sarah Jane being reduced to having the emotional maturity of a, sec of a secondary school-aged socialite girl. <laughs> I feel this episode might have worked better with Eccleston, as I could see his doctor being tempted by Finch. James H., a mediocre plot supported by the inclusion of schmaltz. Colin Hicks said, with his blonde heroine angsting about the exes of her immortal love interest, the schlubby guy who still fancies her bemoaning his uselessness, in contrast to the rest of the team, the disguised monsters snacking on high school students, and a smattering of teenage slang, this couldn't be a more obvious homi uh, Buffy homage if Anthony Head was in it. Oh. <laughs> and finally, Martin Matin. Martin Matin? Martin Matin. Martin Mason, hello. It's so delightful to see Elizabeth Sladen back and I can almost look beyond the horrific way they treat Sarah. She had a life outside her adventures with the Doctor. She was not in love with him. So, Mark has had his say, right or wrong. <coughs> wrong. Um, so, shall we go and see what our others say? Si, I feel you're chomping at the bit. This story made me love Sarah Jane Smith, who I did not rate before I saw this. So there. So that is a good <laughs> reason wow. to love it. Obviously, for those who don't know, K-9 was back <laughs> and he was brilliant and wonderful and made me cry when he blew up and then made me cry when new K-9 turned up at the end. Um, I would just say um, the scene where Sarah Jane sees the Doctor for the first time in the staff room, I think is one of the most wonderful and brilliant scenes because 
the doctor is on the back foot and Sarah Jane is in control there and she doesn't know it's him but he knows it's her and he is completely flummoxed by that and I absolutely love that from her breathy hello right through <laughs> to the oh you're new then and all of that she is a delight all the way through this and I think that's a better scene than when she works out it's the doctor well sorry then it turns on a dime doesn't it because then he's in control of the situation and she's flummoxed so Mm -hmm. as a mirror that works quite well definitely and as lucy pointed out the um scene across the swimming pool with anthony stewart head anthony stewart head shows how he knows exactly how to play this role and this script and he does it beautifully i think it's a triumph it's my favorite episode of the new series and one of my ever my favorite yep I love it to pieces for all the things it did and for making me sob at Sarah Jane Smith. I never thought I would see the day. So, yeah. You know, when when all the people with um, like flaming brassiers come after Mark, will you be right there at the front? No, no, no. Mark's (laughs) entitled to his opinion. He could just be wrong. On first watch, yeah, you get all of that. But I think if you're like, oh, I want to watch a Doctor Who adventure story, I don't know. I just, on rewatch, I just don't think it that you need a bit more to it, I think. It is solved by pulling out a plug, which is pretty poor. And I then mean, he... that health yeah. and safety, all those plugs yeah, plugged I know into that one yeah. extension. I lead. don't know what the school risk assessments were like, but <laughs> this is a school run by aliens, so That's true, everything yeah. is out of the window. The they kids just easily understood Inspector. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Joe. Oh, I love it. I love this episode so much. I it, It's one of the few Doctor Who episodes that makes me cry. And it brought me to tears even watching it this time. And I know what's coming. Um, one of the things I was going to say, if we were going to talk extendedly about the season as a whole, is uh, Rose Tyler being a total cunt, which I lo- <laughs> it's my favourite thing about this season by an absolute <laughs> mile. Because so many companions are so nice all the time, aren't they? Nicely nice. I don't know anyone like that. I'm looking at three people now. And, you know, you are lovely people, but you can all be total cunts as well. We're flawed. We're, we're, we've got more depth to us than that. You know, Clara Roswalds don't exist in the real life. Oh, no, actually, she's a bit of a cunt as well, to be honest. Um, that's a bad example. I know, but she's she is petty and jealous and angry and all those things that we genuinely feel in real life. And it's far more interesting watching somebody going on these adventures, going through that stuff, than it is someone just going, like she does in New Earth, oh, I love you. Oh, going around the universe with you is the best thing ever. That is just so... In comparison, all of this, you know, um, I've met the Emperor... The Loch Ness Monster. All of this bitchiness that's going on in this episode is wild. I love it. Go on, Sai. You want to say something? No, no, no. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that's a brilliant reaction and not the one you'd expect. Whereas usually we have like the five doctors. Oh, hello, I'm Tegan. Hello, I'm Sarah. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I um, mean... Have you been through all this? Um, but to have someone who is jealous and doesn't understand and can't get a handle on this is really really great people find it annoying i think it's hilarious that whole bit where you know where sarah goes hi i'm sarah <laughs> i love that get and you then, tiger oh, <laughs> even, oh no mark doesn't like it at all but the oh. bit at the end is the, the bit i do you remember we watched us laughing my head off where mickey goes can i come and rose goes yeah fine whatever <laughs> you are you are such a cow honestly oh i love it so 
so Rose in this episode is one of my highlights. I didn't want to sort of go the obvious route and say Sarah. I actually think Rose goes on a bit of a journey here. And then the scene where they do compare Doctor Who monsters that they've met, which is the funniest way of doing this sort of soapy angst within a Doctor Who episode. And then them coming together and laughing and then being a team from that point on. Oh, I love it all. Um, Anthony Head is my second reason. Possibly the definitive Doctor Who villain performance. I mean, just that first scene where it goes to the little girl, you know, oh, you poor orphan child, no one to go home to, come into my office. <laughs> he knows exactly what he's playing. You know, the bit that so I talked about around the pool, the time loss, ancient dusty senators. Ah, oh, he just knows what he's, and then he gets to bare his teeth at the end and he gets the great lines about, you know, you bad dog. And all of this. It's a brilliant, brilliant performance. Um, and sorry, Mark, I, I completely disagree about the Carillotanes. I think the CGI holds up extremely well. I think it's because there's a lot of movement and they're sort of flying about. So you don't have a lot of time to look at the actual CGI rendering itself because there's so much going on. And it's it's kind of fluid and the camera work works with it. And I like the idea of a race that cherry picks the best of other races and absorbs it into themselves and and then moves on to the next race. I just think that's a really interesting idea. So uh, I haven't even mentioned Sarah Jane, the brilliant production values, the great jokes in this, the awesome score, the bit where Sarah talks about love and loss, which means even more to us now. Now we've lost Sarah Jane and that heart-wrenching ending outside the TARDIS where she finally gets the goodbye from him. I just think it's nearly flawless. So yeah, it's going through. And I am also absolutely 100% putting this through. Um, I am going to be predictable, Joe, and I am going to put my first reason as being Elizabeth Sladen because Sarah Jane was my companion. So I was eight when she came to the show. And my God, I just loved Elizabeth Sladen with every inch of my being. Um, and it was just wonderful to have her back. And yes, we'd had Canine and Company, which was a bit mare. We'd had the five doctors, which wasn't really Sarah. And when it was announced that she was coming back in, like Elizabeth Sladen, I thought, oh God, is it just going to be a cameo? But it's not. She's absolutely there, front and centre in the episode. Uh, and she is magnificent. She absolutely rises to the occasion. I know we haven't got to it yet, but there are um, discussions to be had about how well Janet Fielding and Sophie Aldred fit into modern Doctor <laughs> Who. Um, but Elizabeth Sladen absolutely Ooh. fitted in perfectly. She is she's just warm. She's it's no wonder she was given her own series. She's warm. She's engaging. She's just got so much humanity. She's a beautiful actress. Um, so, yeah. Elizabeth Slade absolutely is my number one reason for being in there. And like you, I like that bit of spikiness that she's got with Rose. I think that works perfectly well. She constantly talks about the fact I've got old and she realises it. Well, I think RTD does really well here because those opening scenes feel a bit like a mirror of the Time Warrior because she's investigating as normal. You don't get any sense the time's gone by. But as soon as she meets the Doctor, the first thing she says is, I've got old. And she realises the time has gone past. And then all the conversations with Rose, they're all very snarky, but they're all about her age because she, you know, she's looking at this younger replacement for her and feeling her age. Uh, and I think that's done really well. They resolve it, I think, just about the right time it doesn't go on too long and and then they become a gang and as you say David Tennant then takes Sarah's hand as they run out the school and I'm already in tears by that point um the my Sarah Jane scene at the end oh, I've actually boy. not watched this I've not watched this for quite a few years purposefully because that last scene it just absolutely kills me because Sarah Jane meant so much to me growing up um that 
that when he says my Sarah, I'm off now in a minute. <laughs> my Sarah Jane. And he asked to say, and she wants him to say goodbye to her. It's just, it's just so beautiful. You know, Rod, what gets me is the bit where she goes, Oh, we replace you with a brand new model. <laughs> model. Uh, that bit always does <laughs> that. <laughs> Look and at him, walking heartless off. soul in the corner. Yeah, yeah. And he is walking off into the sunsets to Oh, uh, with canine. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. And let's, yeah, a big shout out for K92. John Leeson's back. Oh. We haven't done a horrible redesign like the Australian TV show. We've got proper K9 back. Sorry, Si. <laughs> I did hear you. And I hear you supporting it, but it's shit. <laughs> this is proper K9. He's back. It's John Leeson. Uh, and he's wonderful. And he and sacrifices he's... himself, noble self-sacrifice, blows himself up for the doctor. What more can you want? And it lets Mickey realise that he's the tin dog. And I think that's great. Uh, like you say, the Krillotane, I think I'd also agree with you. I think they're a very interesting race. There's a lot more to do with them. I love when Finch offers the doctor, he says that you can change all the laws of the universe. And he says, you act, uh, you act like such a radical, yet all you want to do is preserve the old order. I thought it was a really interesting line about the doctor's morality. And then ultimately, it's Sarah who rejects that and says, you know, mm. we've all got to move on. We've got to accept pain and loss and grief. Um, and yeah, it's just really moving. How could anyone not want to put this through? It's just shocking to me. It is How could anyone, anyone want to put this through? It is absolutely 100% Look at him. He's going unrepentant through. as well. Yeah. Uh, when Sarah Jane and Kane are walking off into the distance, I don't want to ruin it for anyone, but if you look top right, there's someone in their garden looking over going, oh, it's Dr. Heaping filmed down there. Like, see someone in the corner. No, they're looking down thinking, who's that strange woman and that tin dog? <laughs> I want one. You know. <laughs> Hearing oh. strains of canine and company theme coming through. Canine. <laughs> right, so that is definitely going through. So Mark, fortunately, has been defeated. Joe, we come to you for your first pick. You knew that was coming, though, right? Oh, I know. Um. Oh, yeah, is it me? It is you, Joe. Um, why are we all choosing ones we want to kick out? Literally, this is the third one on the trot now. No, I wanted to keep mine. Oh, yeah, you did. I'm so yeah. sorry, sorry. We yeah. all kicked it I'm, off. I'm sorry. My brain rejected the fact that you wanted to keep fear her. Because <laughs> it's just so unbelievable. Um, I would like to dispose of the idiot's lantern, please. Um, a mid-series episode, which I do think does have a lot going for it. I think there is some nice direction from Euros Lynn. I think it's got a great Murray Gold score. Um, and I think... That Rose, for as much as she contributes to the episode, I don't think Billy Farber puts a foot wrong this year. I think Rose is great in this episode. Um, I do think it has a very confused tone, this story. What you were talking about earlier about the tone meeting, you literally go from like a domestic drama uh, in the house of the Connollys to like a spy thriller, which is all this stuff going around the streets, chasing after the thing, to a horror, which is all these blank faced people going around to this crazy sort of science fiction ending going up the tower at the end and the wire. And the episode just doesn't know what it wants to do. It's like Mark Gates wants to tell every fucking Doctor Who story he possibly can, just in case the series is cancelled at the end of the season. And it's a bit much. I kind of think all the individual elements work, but you jam them all into one story. And I'm like, what am I watching? 
I do like a consistency of tone. Another romanticised view, and this time of the British Empire. I think there's some something pretty dodgy going on with Mark Gatiss and the British Empire. Go watch Victory of the Daleks as well. He's got this very romanticised vision of Britain in the past, which is, a, if you look into it, a bit dodgier than perhaps he's suggesting. Um, so it does that. All of that makes me feel a bit uncomfortable. And I'm not. Not proud to be British before I say that, but I just think this sort of glowing view of Britain as being a flawless society, it sits uneasy with me. Um, this is David Tennant's weakest performance of the season, I think. The sequence where he gets up and goes, and I'm not listening! Ah! All of that stuff is stop. Like he's really feeling his way into the part here and seeing how far he can go. Unfortunately, nobody's saying don't go that far. Someone should be pulling him back a little bit. And there are several moments in this episode where I was just sort of holding up a cushion going, oh, God, even Matt Smith wouldn't do it this badly. Um, <clears throat> and a, a bonus reason is I think it's the first of many, and I don't think they ever work. It doesn't work here. It doesn't work in Daleks Tank Manhattan. It doesn't work in The Vampires of Venice. These Climaxes where someone just ascends a tower as electric bolts are flying everywhere, and you do a little bit of techno babble with a, a spanner, and that's the end of the story. And it's going for scale, but they don't really have the production value to pull it off because it just looks like dreadful CGI. So it just feels really brainless. So yeah, it's, there's some good stuff in here, but I think as a whole, it's it's not very sure about what it's doing. So that's why I would get rid of it. And there's a lot of episodes in this season that are definitively sure about what they're doing like tooth and claw like go in the fireplace this is one where i think it's a bit all over the place it's a bit muddled okay so let's go to the comments stephen b says dear old mark gatiss delving into britain's cultural history to bring us a television story about the first great televisual event in the uk the coronation and examining tropes regarding the early concerns of tv's effects and family structures in post-war britain lovely well, of course, it's got those things in it as well, which are marvellous. But uh, Dylan Reese says, just when I thought it couldn't get any better, a big slice of classic style Who in the middle of this reboot. RTD once said if Doctor Who came back for one night only and it was this, it would be hailed as a classic. And I stand by this. Now, if that was the case, if this was the only episode of Doctor Who we got in the 2000s, I'd be like, wow, they're doing every type of Doctor Who story in one episode just so we can have a whole season. But that's not the case. Jack Coyer says the Doctor gets put in our position. Rose Tyler is in trouble and he can't reach through the television screen to help her. The dad is forgiven far too easily. Daniel Knight, bit dull, but Maureen Lippman is great as the wire. John Bensalia says again, neat premise, but the execution lets it down big style. Corny lines grapple with another hammy baddie. Worse offenders are the Doctor and Rose, who reach insufferable levels of smug. We should be having a drinking game for every time the word smug is mentioned. <laughs> Tennant seriously lets the side down here with Stephen Thorne levels of bellowing. Yeah, oh, awful. Fraser Gregory, of course, you got love it in here after everything I said. Some great period drama, always good to see a bully put in their place. And The Wire is electric. A story that really should work somehow doesn't, probably because of the uh, because of Rose and the Doctor. Been it. Michael Storm says another average episode with the actor who plays the dad has evidently had Roger Lloyd Pack coach his <laughs> performance. Plus, they completely ignore how 1950s morality worked. The wife wouldn't kick him out due to the unfair stigma she would receive despite him being a bully and overall piece of shit. 
Some of his behavior could be explained by the weird events going on triggering World War II related trauma and PTSD, such as in reporting victims to the police. But overall, he's an utter twat. Finally, James H, the best Sapphire and Steel story the show has ever done up to this point. Okay, so I'm going to respond first on this one. And I disagree with you, Joe. I think this You're is... wrong. I thought you said earlier, people are never wrong with their opinions. You are the exception. Thank you. <laughs> I like to be different. I like this episode. It's not the greatest episode, but I think it's got a lot to defend there. So the first reason would be it's a large scale plot, but we are focusing on the domestic. I think the Doctor and Rose mentioned twice that they're taking the domestic approach. And we are doing that. We're seeing a family in 1953. Joe, you're saying it, it kind of eulogises the British Empire. But I think here it's a bit more justified because people in 1953 did behave like this. They were all sat around their TV, sat in their Sunday best and waving their flags. That's what's what Britain was at that time. So I think this episode is more reflective of what was actually happening in Britain. Um, and I think that family thing and the domestic approaches is, is um, shown best by the Connollys, who in a way almost mirror the Tylers, the way they're all sat around the TV. It very much reminds me of the Tylers in series one, where we see obviously Jackie holding court at home with all the friends and neighbours sat round. And when Ed is gone, Rita does exactly the same. She says to everyone at the end, oh, everyone all right for pop? And I can almost hear Jackie saying that line. It's got that same kind of domestic feel. Probably is, though. There's, there's no subtlety to Eddie at all. He's like no, a, he's is. like a cartoon character. So yeah. those scenes sink because he's not scary. He's just ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, he's not. It's not a great performance. Um, but talking of Eddie, I mean, he is written as a man of his time. You know, he believes that women should do the housework. He believes that you know he should run the house as he sees fit. He's very much of that 1950s ilk. And he is a bully. Yeah, we, we see clearly that he's a bully. His wife is afraid of him. He despises his son. It's made very clear that Tommy is gay. Um, and Eddie hates that. I mean, he says... Is it? When do they yeah. say it's Tommy's gay? He says, you're a proper little mummy's boy. And the aunt says, you know what they say about them. You want to beat that out of him. So it's very clear that Tommy is gay. Oh, I didn't get that at all. I'm usually well on board for those sort of things your gay your gay <laughs> dar let you down joe oh, no. i believe we were all called mummy's boys at one point you know all four of us <laughs> probably <laughs> but i think it's very clear and then he describes rita's mother as filthy disgusting thing eddie has got this thing about people who are not of the norm who were not sticking to his worldview. Tommy is that because Tommy is gay and obviously the mother is because she's had her face taken off. And I think it's a great positive message that the doctor adopts Tommy as kind of pseudo companion for the story. And ultimately it's Tommy that saves the day. So yeah, I think that's giving a nice positive message. And there's a lot of criticism. We had it some, uh, some of the criticism by the comments there about people talking about the final scene, forgiving the father. I don't think anyone forgives the father Rose just encourages Tommy to go and talk to him. She's lost her father. So she's just saying, go and talk to him. He is still your father. See if you can kind of find a middle way that you can go forward. So I think that's perfectly, perfectly acceptable. Um, so that's my first reason. I love all that domestic stuff. I think it works very well. I think it's a good threat. I think Maureen Lippmann absolutely camps it up wonderfully. Uh, I think she gives a great OTT performance. Um, hungry. There's lots of stuff in this series that's written for the playground, like it was back in our day. And the bellowing hungry of the wire is definitely one of those playground things you can imagine. Uh, the removal of faces doesn't make an awful lot of sense, but it makes a great action figure. 
figure because I'm sure we all had our grandma Connolly with her face missing. <laughs> <laughs> we all had one. Have you got them. that one, Mark? Yeah. Oh, oh no. there we go. <laughs> Part of the old people of Doctor Who collection. <laughs> it's up there with destroyed Cassandra, isn't it? <laughs> so I like the threat. And finally, I think the production's good here. I like the Dutch angles used throughout the story, make it very distinctive. Good period feeling, good period dressing. Uh, it's bright, breezy, colourful, and but sandwiched where it is between too much dark stories. I think it works really well. So for me, it's definitely going through. Will you throw it over to our guest? I'll just count at one point because uh, have you ever seen the Taylor's Dummy, the Jonathan Creek episode? Probably. Maureen Lippman plays the villain in that, right? And it's not revealed until the end. And she's completely gaga, right? She has a wonderful line where they're all looking at her because she's just talked about murdering a load of people. She's like, why are you all looking at me as if I'm mad? And she's great in it. I think she's wasted in this. I don't. I, I feel like, yeah, it's, it's camp and she's having fun with it, but it isn't a substantial role. She is just in that telly spitting out the odd camp line. Whereas yeah. I just want to see her get something. She She's such a good actress. She could have taken hold of a big, juicy villain role and and ran with it. I know what you mean, but I do love her at the beginning when she's speaking in that very clipped 1950s. Now, come along, children. I think she does that really well. And when she uses that quite many... Oh, magpie. <laughs> magpie. <laughs> Great. You see, you're loving it. Let's go to Mark. Mark. Yeah, this isn't a, uh, a favourite of mine, unfortunately. <laughs> Who invited <Sorry>. him on? <laughs> well, you've got, you've got these two elements. I mean, you've got Tommy and his dad and Maury Lippman in a box. Basically, these two. <laughs> Before her time. <laughs> these two things. Um, but it, it's a great concept. The This everyday item, the TV going into the everyone's living room and this alien thing. It's that it's got that Pertwee vibe to it. The everyday in, in everybody's house and some alien thing. But it just doesn't come together with me. I don't... The um, I've written down about the, the dad's uh, performance as well. Just like a one-note oath. There's no subtlety <laughs> One-note <there>. oath. <laughs> I, I think it could have been played with, uh, with a, you know, on a few more different levels there. And I, I just really don't like when the Doctor and Rose start, you know, they chastise him, but they just come across as sort of being bullies themselves. Just, just like him, really. They don't. What? Well, it's not a heroic moment. It's not a. What? What is the point of that? It just feels really uncomfortable. Their their behaviour. Um, if someone I... walked into your house and started telling you you had to put up decorations and all of this. I'd be like, will you fuck off out of my house, please? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just don't like that. And um, yeah, I also put, yeah, there's too much time just climbing up a tower at the end. Um, it, it just doesn't come together as a cohesive episode for me. So, Sai, you've got the casting vote. I'm keeping it in Good because time. I actually quite like this one. I don't think it's perfect, but it's one that I always enjoy going back to because I think Maureen Lipman is absolutely superb. I think, although she doesn't ever come out of the TV, she is still full of menace and still a dangerous threat. And I think that takes some skill to do. And the fact that we've got a villain who's on TV, on TV, is a really lovely meta image, and I really love that. So I imagine also... if she imagine if she crawled out the TV like the Grudge. <laughs> <laughs> always thinking. I, I always hoped it'd be like Evil Edna from Willow the Wisp. 
and the TV oh, would start yes. moving and she'd start beaming in. Even <laughs> when so Freddy Krueger, his arms and all that yes. came out of the TV. <laughs> See, this is the difference between us. You go for Nightmare on Elm Street, mm. I go for early Wind 80s. The whisk, yeah. <laughs> You're far too nice for your own good. Do you know? Um, also, I'm going to say, um, someone we haven't mentioned, I think Ron Cook as Mr. Magpie is absolutely excellent and particularly... He is so good at the world weariness. He is really brilliant. And it's a really great performance. I really like him. And, okay, I I always laugh when um, the, the bewildered security guard just shouts out, Your Majesty, come back, it's not safe. <laughs> I love things like that. So just for that reason, I think that is also so, also good. So, yeah, I'd keep it in. I, It's not Mark Gatiss's best script, but it's far from his worst. Oh, that's for sure. Yeah, so, but it, I, only because it gets <laughs> so bad. So Idiot's Lantern stays. So it's my time. So I am going to pick what I would say is one of the all-time classics of Doctor Who. It's absolutely one of my favourite. It's up there in the top ten for me. If you say New Earth, we're parting ways now. <laughs> it's New Earth. No, it's not. Oh, my God. <laughs> it is, of course... Love and Monsters, <laughs> which I think is an absolutely <laughs> classic slice of Doctor Who. I thought so, you were going to say go in the fireplace. <laughs> no, I, th- I knew you. I was waiting for you to jump in and say that. No, Love and Monsters. So firstly, I'm sick to the back teeth of people criticising this, saying, oh, it's not Doctor Who. This is absolutely Doctor Who through and through. This is Doctor Who both fictionally and non-fictionally. So obviously this is our first Doctor Light episode that we've had in the new series, not including the black and white days when Patrick Troughton or Willie Martin will go off on holiday for a couple of weeks and come back with some time. This is our first proper Doctor Light, but the character of the Doctor is absolutely fundamental to this story. So even though we're telling a very different type of story here, this is absolutely about the Doctor and the impact he makes on people and on the planet. And in some ways, that actually makes this the most Doctor Who-y episode of all of them. Because ultimately, what is driving Elton is to search for the Doctor, is the memory of the Doctor in his house when he was three years old. And uh, that's a great start. We come to the reason for that later on. I would suggest, you know, that Turn Left takes that same concept and does it even better. I was just about to say, as with Turn Left. Oh, sorry, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's all right. <laughs> um, but for a different reason, actually, Joe, it's a fair point. But there are similarities with Turn Left. But as with Turn Left, we take a different take on adventures we've already seen. So we see bits of Rose here. We see bits of Aliens of London. We see Christmas Invasion. But we're seeing them from Elton's perspective. So, again, we're very much bedding this in the world that our audience have got used to in the last two years. Even the Absorbaloff later on turns out to be a, a cousin of the Slovene. So we are mired in Doctor Who here. The plot pivots on the inclusion of Jackie, who is possibly the most rounded and best-loved character of this stage in the series. So again, this is absolutely reveling in Doctor Who. But it's also about Doctor Who from a meta point of view. So this is about Doctor Who non-fictionally, because Linda represents us. We are Linda. We are constantly searching for as much information that we can get about (laughs) Doctor Who. And when times are good, we find friendships and even love through Doctor Who. Who knew that people, you know, could find love through a, I don't know, a shared love of the TV movie, maybe? Impossible. But, you know, it could could happen. Um, What 
what they're saying here is love can be corrupted and things can go toxic when someone with an agenda takes control. Naming... Are, you, are you saying somebody, you know, might come along creating crazy bad animations, you know, taking control of fandom and poisoning it? Are you talking about the type of person who could promote themselves to the unofficial continuity advisor <laughs> and shape all sorts of stories? I, I couldn't possibly say. No, um, I refuse to believe that that sort of person would exist ever. Yeah. But I think what it's so what it's reminding us, as we are, Linda, is that we need to value our community and show love and respect for each other as we do on this podcast. Because only at the because the end of the episode shows it's only by Linda all coming together that we can defeat the monsters. So that's my first reason. I think no, it, you know, as a as a sort of view on Doctor Who fandom, I realize I've talked about bitchiness a lot tonight. But like, there should have been you know like two sections of this Linda group <laughs> where one section's going oh. God, you heard what she said about Johnny Falsetta's latest adventures, you know, and being really bitchy about each other. Because that's Doctor Who fandom as well, okay? It ain't, all, it ain't this great love fest that Rusty Davis is pretending it is. In 45 minutes, let's go with that. Okay. So that's my first reason. My second reason is the queen of Doctor Who, Jackie Tyler. She, this is an absolute showcase for Jackie. She gets to be funny, cheeky. I love it when she holds knickers up to <laughs> Twelton in the laundrette. Oh, I'm flashing my knickers at you. She's flirtatious. She throws the wine over Elton, not once, but twice. Um, but then when she gets the call from Rose, she forgets all of that. The facade and all the flirtiness all goes away. And she's, she's just worried about her daughter. She's very, very human. And then obviously when she rumbles Elton and, and tackles him outside the flat, she's, she's a powerhouse. She's a, you know, a mother lioness protecting her brood. And she's wonderful. But there's just so many details about Jackie that just make her real for me. She's playing El Diva. What else would Jackie play but El Diva? <laughs> Unbreak my heart. Um, Elton says to her, the wine, he says, oh, is this French? And she says, oh, I suppose so. They know how to do things, the French. <laughs> I just love she her life. She's such a slag, isn't she? She's <laughs> just so real, isn't she? I know, she's eyeing up his ass constantly as he's changing oh. those views. <clears throat> I've oh, never she's... related to her character more, if I'm honest. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my second reason is Jackie. My third reason, I cannot give you a third reason because there are so many things. So I'm just going to reel off a few of them. The Scooby-Doo chase at the beginning is hilarious. Peter Kay, I think, gives a brilliant performance from that grand entrance, that camp entrance, with all the lights go down. And he comes in with his hat and his cane, spotlight on him. Touch me, the eczema. The eczema! Do not touch me, my eczema. Then you've got Bliss, oh, bless, bliss. She ends up on the Absorbalaf's arse, for Christ's sake, but she's lovely. Uh, we've got the romance between Mr. Skinner and Bridget, the romance between Elson and Elsa. Ursula and Elton. Uh, there's just so much to love in this, isn't it? I mean, these characters just feel surreal. You've got Bridget's story. She's gone to London to look for a daughter. It's just very simple, but it makes you feel for these characters. Um, I am absolutely going to dis defend the paving slab joke. Um, <laughs> he says, we have a love life. She is pursing her lips at him. In other words, they kiss. She is a face on a slab. <laughs> it depends they... how filthy you are that you read that. You know, Fraser Gregory is absolute filth, isn't he? He thinks it's disgraceful. But... I think uh, it's a kiss when it first broadcast. So there we go. Do you know, Sai, so did I. And I am Mr. Yeah. Innuendo. And I thought they meant to kiss. <laughs> Present company about... excluded as well. I have been sucked off by worse than a pavement slab. <laughs> so it's not, <laughs> it's not completely unlikely. <laughs> 
Sorry, oh, continue. You. Only you, you, I was about to get emotional there for the end. You've ruined it now. Because <laughs> um, my final piece de resistance for this episode, which again is a moment that takes me to tears, because Russell does that all the time, is the montage of Elton at the end thinking of all the home movies of his mother. Oh. And she just fades out as they play Mr. Blue Sky. And he said, we forget because we must. I mean, it's just beautiful. So I think Love of Monsters is an absolute triumph from start to finish and i am putting it through should we go to the comments yeah can i go first because joe short's got a very different reading on this go for uh, it she says beyond redemption peter k is possibly one of the worst guest stars in doctor who okay i disagree dylan reese says great script terrible direction the blowjob slab is hilarious and more jackie tyler is always good oh he loves the slab of course he does Stephen b in equal parts a love letter to the show and a reflection on all that is both joyous and wrong with fandom yes wrong yes we are we are the love and we are the monsters mark warren leads but camille Caturi steals the show mark donaldson says people accuse Stephen moffat of being a misogynist but rtd literally turns a woman into a cock sucking paving slab <laughs> 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 Daniel Knight, a wild mix of wonderful and awfulness. Shout out to Camille Kajuri, who is wonderful as she gets to do a bit more than provide the comedy. Fraser Gregory says, could have been great if not for the tonal whiplash at the end. Do a Moffat where everyone lives and we're happy. A fun, frothy story shouldn't have a sour end. Bin it. Like, he's missing the point again. Completely. The point is about mm -hmm. fucking life. And we're life is you, Fraser. And yeah. loss. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Fraser. Jack Coyer. This became popular to hate, presumably by people who hate fun hijinks. We are presented an outsider's view on the Doctor and Rose's antics for viewers not yet in on the joke. Jackie Tyler is the heart of this era and the Absorbalof scared young me. He's so smart, Jack, isn't he? He is. He's a smart kid. John Bensalia says, who's been very negative so far, I've noticed. <laughs> so, you got to remember, he's the man who professes to hate Christmas, all right? <laughs> yeah. On the plus side, he said, there's a good cast, especially Mark Warren, Moira Brady, and Moaning Myrtle. Poignant moments, plus the Doctor and Rose are hardly in it. Ouch. Downside, questionable humour, mean-spiritedness, and Peter Kay, who sinks the thing faster than the Titanic. Mixed. Jim Allenby, I'll always have a soft spot for Love and Monsters. It was broadcast during a particularly difficult time in my life. It made me realise I, I could move on from the end of a long-term relationship and embrace everything life had to offer. Luke Malloy says a unique look on the Doctor's world from the everyday man. Elton should be boring, but RTD and Mark Warren somehow make him engaging, fun presence. Kooky absorber off, but how fun, but no one talks about the serious underlying theme of how people go, how far people go when they're alone. Everyone in this is deeply alone, and they find themselves via a brief happy spot singing in Linda. It's beautiful. Plus, ELO throughout is joyful. Joe Llewellyn, I've tried, I've really tried, but I just don't like this episode. Elton is unlikable. Whatever happens to the folks in Linda is horrible, and the slab... Good writers made a case for why this is a good episode. I remain unconvinced. 
Well, hopefully, Joe, I've helped convince you. Tom Newsom said if Love and Monsters had been shown as an ironic BBC Two one-off <laughs> for adults, it probably would have won awards. Uh, it should be podcasted. It's great. Colin Hicks, one dodgy joke away from being RTD's best script for the entire series. Well, I wonder what that joke is. Could it have something to do with the paving slab? Uh, and finally, a couple of very succinct answers. Michael Storm says utter wank, and James, James H says, says utter crap. Utter crap. <laughs> and there you go. So, I've defended it. Joe, what do you think? Love and Monsters. Oh, I love Love and Monsters. Um, but I'm going to put a caveat and say I understand why people don't love Love and Monsters because it is a very atypical Doctor Who episode. Um, people don't come to Doctor Who generally to have heart-wrenching stories about people's mothers dying and friendships forming groups and all of this. They come to Doctor Who for monsters and villains and all. So I get that somebody sat down and watched this and went, yeah, this isn't for me. I don't think it's fair to dismiss those people as, as some of us might. Um, but however, I think this is a wonderful treatise on the human condition, a story of hope, loss, love, death, friendship, and all of those things. I think uh, it does it in the way only Rusty Davis can, and that is by making you feel for these people. And you love them immediately. So every time, that's what he does. He gets you to love people like Linda with a Y, and then does something absolutely appalling to them, and that's where your drama is. So this this episode is full of the feels. Uh, I think Mark Warren gives a brilliant performance. Uh, not enough is said about how much he holds up this episode. It's the first time they did this, this Dr. Light thing. And he just stepped into the show and it was like, he, he just owned it, didn't he? And um, I think the use of ELO is superb in this as well. And the way we keep cutting to Elton dancing to songs to extend to the audience how he's feeling during particular things. And then how you use the end of Mr. Blue Sky, which is this really sort of melancholic ending to go along with the scenes of the mum dying at the end. And may I say, I think it's very bold for Doctor Who to show, it shows victims all the time, but to show a dead mother on the floor of such a domestic setting at the end of this episode, that's a really strong image. That's as strong as like Buffy's mum dead on the couch. Sorry for anyone who hasn't watched that um, in series five of Buffy. Uh, and finally, yeah, Jackie Tyler. Um, and the line that always gets me is when she comes out the flat and she says to Elton, it's never me, is it? And there's a hardness and a brittleness to that line at the same time. And anyone who writes off Camille Kajuri as being some terrible comedy actress that's invaded Doctor Who, so much of what works about those first two years is Camille Kajuri and Jackie Tyler. It's what Toby Hado said. She's a, a character that doesn't belong in a Doctor Who story. She belongs in some dreadful soap. And what works about her is you throw her into Doctor Who and suddenly interesting things start happening like they do here. She's incredible. So for all of those reasons and more. I, oh, I'm sorry. One last thing. I think the way this narrative plays out by using sort of flashbacks and rewinds and POVs and all of this, there's so many imaginative ways that, that he gives to the director to bring this to the screen. That's another reason as well. I think it's brilliant. I don't think it's the best of the year, but I think it's the most impressive episode of the year. It's going through. Brilliant. Sai. What we have to remember is that this is a story that's narrated. And so what we're seeing is not necessarily the truth. It's the truth that Elton wants Never us to have. Never thought of that, Sai. He narrates it right from the start, and you can see it in the Scooby-Doo escapades at the start that's not 
going to be entirely how it happened. And that's why this is a super smart episode from Russell T. Davis, because you can take what you want from it and you can dismiss what you want from it because we've got a wholly unreliable narrator who we even see editing the story as we go along. This is brilliant, brilliant writing. This is absolutely superb. And Mark Warren seizes everything that Russell T. Davis does. I loved him in Hustle, which was running at the same time as this. Hustle was my favourite show on TV at the time. And he was sensational in that. And he proves how what a fabulous actor he is in this as well. He is absolutely superb. And like Joe said, the use of ELO is absolutely spot on. What? That's the band to choose. And... Mr. Blue Sky is one of the first songs I can remember loving as a child, as a three-year-old when that came out. I absolutely love that song. I closed my 40th birthday party with Mr. Blue Sky because it's the perfect way to end a party. And just hearing those songs and seeing all the members of Linda come together to perform Don't Let Don't Bring Me Down. Bruce! Bruce! (laughs) It's it's brilliant. That and this is what I always take away from from my love of Doctor Who is that Doctor Who is a show that brings people together from all across wherever. And this is like my story of people who shouldn't belong together, who suddenly found each other when they needed each other the most. And then they got torn apart by horrible means, which is not the end of my story, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> but just that that joy that, the doctor can bring you together whatever happens is brilliant and one more thing i'm just going to say the brilliant scene where elton goes out to find rose and the first person he talks to is bella ember he says <laughs> oh yeah that's rose tyler she lives just over there in that flat in those flats it's absolutely absolutely brilliant writing so yeah russell Definitely, through. I love this episode. And I ha- again, this is another one I haven't been back to for a very long time. And I found there was even more to love in it than I'd I'd seen the previous few times. So yeah. Sai, have you ever um have you ever used that trick where you know where she throws the wine all over the fella? Certainly not, Joe. <laughs> I bet you have. Never... <laughs> <laughs> I have flashed my knickers though. Oh yeah. <laughs> I bet you I'm have. not just in the long dress. <laughs> Mark. Well, Love of Monsters is Obviously, a Marmite episode, Uh-oh. probably the Marmite episode. Oh, so no. I feel like probably oh. I'm here to represent the other side oh, of the thing. No. Debbie Downer's in the house. Here oh, we go. It's going through anyway. We've got two classes. Thank well, God well, for that. well, to prove that, I mean, you both sort of mentioned about the Scooby Doo running moment. The top of my notes is as soon as the Scooby Doo running moment happened i'm i was completely out of this episode <laughs> <laughs> well, don't try that. i love that just bit. think it's a bit oh. silly and linda aren't they all a bit stupid <laughs> taken in <laughs> by <laughs> by peter k i just think i don't really like any of the characters i think they're just a bunch what? of idiots um and i don't really care about them and i don't really connect with elton i don't think I don't like him as a character very much, and he is, like you said, he is running like this this whole story. So if you if you don't really like him, then that's a bit of a failure. Can I um, ask you a question though? Do you I, is he simple? He sometimes plays the lines. 
No, not well. Well, he's, he's very simple. <laughs> no, not Mark. No. Um, no, I mean Elton. Is he? Is he got difficulties? Because sometimes he does line readings, and he's not talking like an adult. He's talking it's like a, a character child. choice. I think it's a character choice. Yeah, I yeah. think it's more that he's he's innocent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but no. you're innocent, Sai, but you still talk like <laughs> I'm an adult. not innocent, Joe. <laughs> well, no, I mean, that's been well established. Innocent. Yeah. <laughs> I think we know at least 75% of the audience listening to this have had sex with you at some point. <laughs> Sorry, I had to get a reference in there somewhere. Every time. <laughs> it's uh, As a Dr. Light episode, I think maybe maybe if they haven't got the availability of David Tennant, just don't make a Dr. Light episode. I I... I I can understand all the all the points that you've made about the the sort of metaphors within this within fandom and everything, but I just want a, a standard Doctor Who episode with the Doctor in it. You are that person I was talking about, aren't you? Yeah, that person that wants so, a Doctor Who story with villains and monsters and and a fun ride. Yeah, Mark so I is didn't... the audience. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when I first watched it, I was like, "Oh, there's not. Where's where's the Doctor? What's happening? I don't want to. I don't want to know about these people. I, I'm not interested. And it's one that I don't go back to because of that. I'm like, oh. And uh, do you know what? There you go. Well, we've got to say that's that. The other side. There's. We've got to say that you represent the majority. When it comes to love monsters, like we've all offered passionate defenses about the episode. This is an episode that came what bottom, second bottom of the DWM poll. Fandom hates this episode on the whole. So I, I don't think your opinion. I don't know. I, I think opinion is changing. I think. No, I think at the those... time it very much was. Very the AI much. was a massive drop, wasn't it? I think it was seventy six, whereas yeah. everything else was getting mm. like eighty fives. Mm. So I, it was I... a, it was a significant drop for the general public as well. I think the people that like love it's like those Moffat era fans. There's not many of them, but they're very loud. <laughs> they're very loud. <laughs> you better believe it, Ford. Uh-huh. <sighs> okay. So I think, by the way, Joe, I think did, I mentioned when we were discussing the format for this show, mm. we discussed being able to eject a guest part way through. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, well, can you go and make the tea then, please? <laughs> <laughs> Right, so we've done our first four stories. So at this point, it's a good opportune moment to come back to the uh, listeners' overall comments about the season. So we return to our fabulous guest readers. Uh, let's start with Mr. Cy Hart. Jack Coyer says, Given the 10th Doctor's popularity, it's shocking that they don't fully lock down who he is as he gets different costumes, accents, haircuts and characters to deal with before the season is finished. Oh, he's clever. He's even thrown a Dr. Light, which Eccleston never gets saddled with. Some great horror moments throughout, and enough variety that I can keep coming back to it for for binging, even if it's not one of my absolute favourites. Michael Storm says, this is when the show started... I'll start that again. This is when the show started to learn to lean... Hang on, let me start that again. I haven't got my glasses on. (laughs) This is when the show started to lean into populism as opposed to being popular. They cherry-pick the best bits of Series 1, but rather than fix the bits which don't work, they discard them. However, RTD does push a few risks risks by taking us beyond Earth. I don't disagree with him, you know. I think no. I don't think 2 is anywhere near as strong as 1, despite his high points. Complexicated Cookie says, <laughs> sorry, I have completely failed to say your name. Um says, not the biggest fan of this series, 
Though it has some highlights, in general, it's a reduction in quality from the excellent Series 1. Rose has turned from an adventurous traveller with a heart so pure that she's prepared to sacrifice herself in the parting of the ways to a selfish, jealous woman with little regard for how her actions affect others, particularly Mickey. Though that's partly redeemed in the finale, it still leaves a bad taste. Uh, Melvin Penner says, A couple of the major themes of Series 2 are the importance of communication and how relationships between friends, family or even work colleagues, depend on it. Fungibility and replaceability and how folks handle it hinge on both. That's why School Reunion and Girl in the Fireplace are so critical. The lesson that Rose should be taking is to grasp and enjoy the chaos while you can. The fact that she insists on it being permanent and forever is her tragic flaw, and she pays for it in the end. Fungibility? What does that mean? That was a new one on me. Does anyone know? Well, no, I did look okay. it up, but in my stupidity, I've now forgotten what it was. Oh. <laughs> so, and I will just say, because he's putting loads of comments and everyone gets his name wrong, it's uh, Melvin Pena. P- Melvin, Pena. I got your back, all right? Okay. <laughs> Paul Smee says, a decent series, Tenant is great and hits the ground running, Billy is okay, great return for Sarah Jane and K9. James Lark uh, says, remember enjoying it. Remember enjoying it at the time, but it hasn't aged well. Far too much of the plotting is sloppy and padded. The Dr. Rose combo is unbearably smug and so many cringe moments. But worse than that is how often it treads the line between unnecessarily or just plain yuck. The Stephen Hawking joke, the paving slab, the the bizarre decision to make the Doctor's already dubious interest in girls more than a 50th of his age explicit. (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's a bit problematic isn't it yeah. David Gillespie Pratt says not a perfect 10 but a season with some amazing highs and fear her <laughs> the three episode run tooth and claw to the girl in the fireplace that was Doctor Who fresh and full of confidence and building on its 2005 success Luke Malloy says a harshly criticised and severely underrated series. I'm unsure what happened in the last few years to make everyone hate this and Rose when it was so great and popular at the time, and rightly so. It's a series just waiting, just wanting to have fun and adventure. And my lovely friend Tom Newsom says, has a real confidence after series one, which was still incredible, but episodes like Tooth and Claw and Girl in the Fireplace really catch fire. And probably blow the budget. It really <laughs> founds a house style thanks to RTD and David Tennant, who fits the material amazingly. And Jim Allenby says, It might be intentional, but Ten and Rose drive me up the wall. <laughs> there are some classics in this season, but the older I get, the more I prefer small-scale stories like The Idiot's Lantern and Gasp, Fear Her. Tennant got better in Series 3. Do you hear that, Fraser Gregory? So interesting. So we've had four stories. One's been booted, fair her, but the other three have all had mixed reviews, which is interesting. So let's go around for the second four. So we started with Mark last time. So we're going to start with Sai. Okay. I am going to champion 
the impossible Satan Pit Planet. Hey! It is magnificent. It is the very best base under siege story that the new series has done. The enclosed space is so brilliant and so well populated with fabulous, memorable, brilliantly played characters. I did a whole two episode very long hamster on why this one was brilliant. So I will just praise that by saying the characters are brilliant. The setting is brilliant. Toby Zed is the most gorgeous man in the whole of this series of Doctor Who. What, even when he's evil? Particularly when he's evil. And when he's standing outside with the wind blowing in his face, with that smug, evil, horrible smile on his face is great. Would you have gone He's running good. to him, Si, at that point? I would. I'd, I'd fall, <laughs> yeah, good I'd insight fall straight away. sex life there, Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> um, it it, it um, brings one of the greatest Doctor Who monsters to the screen that we have seen from the new series, and the one that's had possibly the most longevity of all of the new series um, monsters other than the Weeping Angels. Um. <laughs> I'd say more so than the Weeping Angel. The Ood have had more appearances. Yes. And they absolutely terrified my six-year-old nephew when he was watching this. When my dad, who was babysitting him, went to cook dinner and left him to watch the scariest episodes (laughs) of Series 2, a six-year-old on his own. He had to go home halfway through the night because he was having such wonderful nightmares. At least we know he's doing his job. Mm -hmm. So, yes, when I took him, my my nephew Luke, to the proms, um, we went to the first Doctor Who prom with him, and um, an Ood walked past us. He visibly shrunk away from that, so it had a good power. So, but also, I would just say, James Strong's direction is really, really good. And as he used to be known in our house, um, James, reassuringly expensive strong, because if he can find the most expensive way to do something, he's going to do it. So, yes, let's put the actress playing Scooty in a swimming pool for several days and film her from all the angles so that she looks natural. Brilliant. Well done, James. That's what we want from Doctor Who. So I think this is an absolute triumph. And if it wasn't for School Reunion, this would be my top pick for the season. And possibly it would be right up there for the David Tennant era for me. I think this is really good. And David, I think, has finally worked out how to do Doctor Who here. Although I still find that, oh, you humans, are you brilliant? (laughs) Really, really awful. But otherwise, he gets it spot on. When we did the commentary on this, right, and they come out the TARDIS and go, oh, we should go, and then they oh. both laugh. Fuck off. That's what, exactly what I said. <laughs> it's the first time I ever heard him swear. It was so funny. You've got to use them sparingly to get you used to all of them. Yeah. But um, it's true. Oh, I'm going to hug you. No. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the annoying part of the Tenth Doctor that we see again and again, and is a central part of his his character. So yeah, you get a pass for that, David. And your hair looks good in this one. <laughs> right, should we go to the comments? Fraser Gregory, my heart sinks, but it's all right. <laughs> he said this is an underrated gem. It's one of those stories where everything works. Writing, direction, acting, along with sets and costumes, visual effects, music, it all just gels. There's a real sense of tension, danger, terror and dread right from the start that few stories manage. Underrated? Who? Oh. Nobody underrates this. Everyone loves I this. I said it was underrated. 
John, sorry, it's the one, only thing I disagreed with in that entire paragraph. So I had to say it. <laughs> John Bensalia, <laughs> the best of the bunch. It, oh my God, John Bensalia is saying something positive. It's a good, spooky script with a decent set of characters and actors. Direction and visuals hold up well too, belying RTD's misguided planet Zog theory. Inevitably let down by the Doctor and Rose. Oh, he couldn't quite make the landing. What, what your mute button is tailor-made for? Stephen B says, one of the best RTD two-parters, <clears throat> taking Hinchcliffe and Holmes' hammer horror into space, mixing it with a classic Trout and Base Under Siege, all realised with an amazing cast and visual effects. It's a masterpiece. This is proper Doctor Who. See, everyone loves it. Dylan Reese, proper scary sci-fi horror, brilliant world building, superb supporting cast, first-class monster. Somebody give Matt Jones another crack. Gareth Bowley says, finally off Earth and sense of true jeopardy. Michael Storm, the highlight of the season, a modern take on a Troughton base under siege with excellent direction, actual scary moments and actual characters. Let down by a rather too convenient ending, a common issue with RTD era Doctor Who. Jack Coyer says, this is more like it. So atmospheric and some horrifying visuals. Great story, really testing the Doctor's faith and an interesting exploration of how invested Rose is. Excellent supporting cast and the beast effect holds up pretty well. Daniel Knight, an effective horror, well cast and directed. The Ood are a stunning creation. Luke Malloy says a horror thriller who has never been scarier, more action-packed and thematically engaging. Joe Llewellyn, my goodness, he says. Oh, sorry, I talked to an American <laughs> accent. <laughs> he is an American. Um, Really, my favourite RTD script. He significantly rewrote That's it. That's not should American, have given himself Joe. at least a co-writer credit. Fantastic guest cast. Proper base under siege. Atheist RTD's take on religion is generally interesting and respectful. <laughs> that was possibly the worst American accent. <laughs> outside no, of Daleks of Manhattan. Outside of Nicola Broyard, yeah. <laughs> James H says, if you ignore the fact that there's nothing in physics that means a planet can't orbit a black hole because of the mavitational pull, then this is a brilliant two-parter. And yes, we did see what you did there, James. Ian Winterton, yes, it's very event horizon, but it's still a cracking adventure and glorious to get Gabriel Wolf back as the beast. And Tom Newsom says, overshadows the Cybermen episode as it's a proper action movie. Jesus, it's Everyone said something positive. Everybody said something wow, positive. Wow, that's a first. Well, well wait. Should we go to Mark? Wait, yeah, we've got Mark <laughs> no. to do. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Mr. Doom say, and Gloom. I was going to say, I, oh, I, I am also going to be positive. I'm going to be positive about this as well. <laughs> wow. My God. Good grief. I think, actually, this has my favourite pre-opening titles sequence. I know the bit where they, they laugh, but the stuff with, with the Ood, we must feed you. I love that moment. Um, all the the Toby stuff, possession stuff, terrifying. This is the scariest Doctor Who has been up until this point. It makes the empty child look like absolute <laughs> like play days. It's nothing, is it? Uh, love that stuff. And yeah, there's all that that action, um, but also there's some quieter moments in in the second episode where the Doctor's going down into that abyss, just down, 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 and he's just uh, talking to Ida about religion and what they believe and everything. It's got some really great just that dialogue and it's just nothing it's just on that um rope just going down i really like that um so yes this is of course i like everybody loved this at the time and i think everybody still loves this um absolutely one of my favorites it's you joe 
Oh, I adore it. Absolutely adore it. I, do you know, I used to love the first episode and be a bit disappointed by the second. And ever since I did the commentary watch with Sai and Fraser, I love the whole thing now. I don't know what I was thinking about back in the day. You go read my review on Doco Reviews. I was savage about, um, what's the second one called? The Satan Pit. Satan Pit. It's got a realistically sort of grimy and gritty workplace. We don't do this enough in Doctor Who. Those tables in the in the eating area, see how filthy they are. Yeah. I wouldn't eat off those tables. But it just it feels like uh, they've been there for a while. They're settled in. No one's really doing the cleaning because there ain't enough. Well, didn't they say there's no one doing the laundry either? Because the doctor's got to do that when he turns up. It just feels it feels like a, a functioning base on this place and i really really like that even like the the way they open and close the doors and things like that it feels like a something that has been constructed as they've come here it's what they do in waters of mars as well and it's just as effective there um so massive massive points for the execution of the setting um you've all said it already the genuine horror that's in this the psychological horror i love as well as the sort of the visceral horror so you said about um will will thorpe outside smiling those images really stuck in my head but the line that gets me is when the beast is really poking at them all when he goes um did your wife ever forgive you mr jefferson let me tell you she never did and it's literally leaning into all of these characters real fears that um toby zed's a virgin that rose tyler's uh, gonna die soon and all, all of that stuff's really really great and that's before you get to all the treaties on religion and stuff you were talking about in episode two um so yeah i think this is a, a genuinely scary episode but it's got like visual scares and it's got psychological scares so it's like a one-two punch um and just Everybody goes on about how great the characters are in this, but I think it's one of the best guest casts as well. All of those actors are brilliantly chosen. You asked me to name a single character in... Sorry. Don't Lost. go Stephen Moffat. No, no, no. In, 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 no, no. I'm going to tell you a similar story. Before the flood and what's it called? I don't remember yeah. any fucking characters in that no. story. None this... of them at all are in my head, but I could name every single character. And it's not just because I watched it this week. It's because they're vivid. It's because there's great details. They've got brilliant backstories. We go on a really terrifying adventure with them, you know, and we explore them. We 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 We're in trouble with them. Um, and it, it's something that the Waters of Mars, again, does brilliantly. Uh, they didn't do enough stories like this. Midnight's another one as well. Sort of once a year, they do one story where they get a brilliant cast of characters and they're all really sort of vivid and memorable. So, yeah, it's one of those Doctor Who stories where basically everything goes right. And so many times with Doctor Who stories, one thing falls to the wayside. The musical score's shit, or the set design's shit, or the direction's bad, or the script's lackluster, or there's one dodgy performance. I don't know, whoever you are, sweetheart, thank you! You know, there's always someone, <laughs> something in there, ruining it. This has got everything. Everything, every box is ticked. Um, yeah, I don't know what he's talking about underrated. I think this is rated very highly and for a good reason. It's obviously going through. And I am going to make it four for four because obviously this is going through. Um, my first reason, I think about it, you know, it's pretty much got every cliche or Doctor Who trope in this story. So we've got, I mean, the first bit, of, you mentioned Mark about the cold open. We will feed you. That's a great subversion, but that's a typical cliche, isn't it? The monster's coming. We will feed. You've got a base, and I'm not saying it does it 
badly. I'm saying it's every cliche, but mm. Don Fraser Watson. hated it. Well, we did the commentary, hated did. that bit. Did he? Oh, I think it was super. I thought that was smart. That's I it was really smart. Room. Yeah, it's a really, really great way of getting out of the cliffhanger. Exactly. Um, as everyone's mentioned, you've got the traditional base under siege, but you know how more isolated a base can you get than a space station hanging on a rock above a black hole that's only got one gravity tunnel to get it out. So again, you're taking it to the extreme. You've got a bunch, small bunch of humans under threat, but as you rightly said, Joe, fantastic cast, fantastic writing. Um, you've got the TARDIS is lost, so they haven't got that as a uh, means of escape. You've got monsters on the rampage. You've got uh, it's a kind of a whodunit as well. Who is in league with the beast? They're all wondering early on is someone playing tricks? Toby certainly thinks someone's playing tricks on him, and then someone yeah, is, is him. in league. Yeah, exactly. The fact they're all hiding a secret as well. You've got kind of that whodunit feel to it as well. Do you remember that bit where he goes? Shh. Oh, I, was just I, know, I that remember bit. that bit. <laughs> <laughs> you don't probably. Get probably the best escape through ventilation ducts um oh, yes. Yes, well, we, we, a... we would all be looking at everyone's asses wouldn't we like mm-hmm. roses well i'm not sure I would if i had that blooming visceral threat of the ood running to i mean that is terrifying <laughs> when the ood scampering behind asses, rod come on <laughs> i think at that moment yeah i think i'd be a little bit more worried about the ood um, you've got everyday objects becoming scary. So Rose's mobile is used with a threat. You've got the intercoms issuing threats. You've got gods and devils from the dawn of time. You've got every cliche in there, but either subverted or done absolutely brilliantly. So that's one of my reasons. And as everyone else has said, you've got really weighty uh, issues of life and death, religion, slavery. Um, Rose reacts really badly to the Ood originally because they're introduced as a slave race and she makes every opportunity uh, quite gratuitously to, to try to talk to them and get involved with them so she doesn't just treat them as servitors and I love the fact that the last line of the episode is Zachary um, saying that he's recommending each and every Ood individually for tribute. I thought fine, so that's showing that they've come round and recognised that the Ood are a race in their own that one bit of unfinished business as well, that the Doctor left them all to die. We pick yes. that up in Planet of the U, don't we? Absolutely. Absolutely. He does say, I'm sorry I couldn't save them. But you're right, it is a bit of a, that's a, bit of a, a sad Apologies moment. for being massacred. Let's go. Yeah, guys. come on. It's all right. Um, you get a real sense of life and death in this. I think that you, you feel it more in others. And it's really helped by the writing again. So that moment when Ida, when the Doctors, you were saying, Mark, uh, the doctor's going down into the pit and I just just saying to him over the intercom I don't want to die alone mm. and you you feel it more there than I think you do in most Doctor Who stories and the same with Rose she doesn't want to leave even though she thinks the doctor's dead she's refusing to leave they have to you know knock her out to take her onto the, board the ship so you get really you know it, it feels more real and then you get stuff about religion and faith yeah it's great and then, you know, as we've all said originally, the production is superb. The Ood have absolutely stood the test of time. I think some of the shots with the Beast and the Doctor in frame at the same time, the CGI is probably not stood the test Fair of enough, time though. that well. Fair but enough. yeah, exactly. But the Beast itself is such an amazing creation. Um, Joe, you were talking about the very real sets, that hexagonal corridor that they run up and down. I have never seen a better designed corridor in my life. It just feels so absolutely real. Um, so yeah, for all these reasons, it is 
absolutely going through. Only in a Doctor Who podcast could the line, <laughs> I've never seen a better designed corridor. <laughs> <laughs> and that corridor went on to star in Totally Doctor Who for the year. Didn't it did. It, as well. yes. And we'll and probably be on next year's Eurovision Song Contest. <laughs> and also, imagine Fear Her if Gabriel Wolf had possessed Chloe Webber. Oh, that's the atmosphere that's that we're looking for. That's oh, what we get in this. Yeah. No, we don't, just want don't, Chloe don't. to be thrown down the pit. <laughs> don't turn around, Chloe Webber. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Right, so, Mark, we are on to you. Ooh, Your second okay. choice. Right. I'll be quite worried was for a oh, second. I'm positive. <laughs> I wasn't sure if I, which one I should... Yeah, no, okay. I am going to talk about Tooth and Claw. Mm. Or a Victorian werewolf in Scotland. <laughs> what a brilliant story! You've got the Doctor and Rose. That I'm, there's a lot. There's been a lot of discussion about their smugness here. I think it's it's okay here. They're enjoying themselves and their delight at meeting Queen Victoria and the whole trying to get her to say we are not amused. I, I just love that interplay and um, Pauline Collins as Queen Victoria is brilliant in this. The way that she sort of puts up, gives them the side eye throughout this whole episode, <laughs> and then proper has a go at them at the end after <laughs> after knighting them and saying, actually, get out of here. Go, she's put up with all of this stuff throughout the whole thing, uh, and just totally cuts them down. She's talking for every Doctor Who fan there, isn't she? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I am not amused! <laughs> <laughs> but it's a great story. From the moment you get the Kung Fu monks, uh, your interest is is peaked. I uh, beg your then... pardon. What do you mean about that? <laughs> you know, it's just a nice story. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just a, it's a cool way of. It doesn't really mean anything, but it's opening. You know, it's a, a cool start to an episode. There's some really scary moments uh, as well with the the guy in the cage where Rose is uh, tied up there, and that that possessed scene. Uh, again, if Chloe Webbo had, had half of that, fear uh, would be Poor great. Chloe but Webber. the way that and the way that he puts his um, face out of the cage and looks up to the moon, uh, and the werewolf here looks brilliant. You've got the point of view shots a lot, but it, it still looks great today. You've got those those horror movie moments where they're all in the in the library and there's noises around them. And they're all trapped in the library. Uh, that that guy that thinks he shot the werewolf and suddenly he's grabbed from oh, the roof. Got those scary moments. Uh, it's like, what do you say? Queen Victoria. She shoots somebody. <laughs> That's pretty cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, this I, is I the just... opposite of Love and Monsters for you, isn't it? This is everything yeah, you want. This from is <laughs> this is it. This is my yeah. This is my type of Doctor Who story. Um, and it sets up all the torturous stuff at the end. It's a very important story. Uh, and I like the way that Queen Victoria um, sets up Torchwood and she banishes the Doctor and Rose. She says, I do not want anything to do with it. This is, these are awful people. I don't want anything to do with this. I, I need to set something up to stop this happening again. You know, it could have easily been, oh, thank you, Doctor, for saving us, you know, uh, and being grateful. And, the, uh, uh, and it doesn't go that way. Uh, yeah. Absolutely he doesn't have brilliant. much luck with queens, does he, the Doctor? No. <laughs> you talk about Adric. Uh, <laughs> but no, this is this is brilliant. I really love this. Fabulous. Yes. Should we go to the comments? Mm. 
John Bensalia. Oh, bit of positivity. Much potential <laughs> here. It's crisp, fast-paced with some welcome moments of horror, moody direction, and a strong guest cast. As ever, the usual flaws squander that potential. No subtlety, Murray's pompous chorus, and a TARDIS team you wish the werewolf would gobble up. Now, John, I love you, but I please stop watching the new series. You're never going to enjoy it, all right? <laughs> Lucy McCall. I enjoyed Tooth and Claw the first time I saw it. Thinking about it now, it's quite an old-fashioned storybook depiction of historical figures. It does rollick along, though, and Rose and the Doctor getting told off for enjoying the danger is nicely done. As always, it's up to viewers to decide whether they object to the depiction of the historical characters, and particularly the use of that specific diamond as a plot device. First time round, I enjoyed the Daredevil Queen. Now, I'm not so sure. Dylan Reese said, when this first aired, I thought it was the best Doctor Who had ever looked. The slow-mo monks and CGI wolf were cutting edge. Stephen B. I love this. Fang rock for a modern audience. The beast trapped within, literally and metaphorically, and the use of light to destroy the big bad wolf, literally and metaphorically, is masterful storytelling. The best kind of Doctor Who historical. Fun, smart and scary. Jack Coyer said, fun, scary, atmospheric, unfairly forgotten. Are the ninja monks the most well-recognised image in Doctor Who history from their use as a BBC ident? Historicals bring this TARDIS team closer, lording it over people from the past. Were they an ident? Yeah, I think they so. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> Fraser Gregory, a more substantial piece, though it does suffer a bit from shopping list Kung Fu monks, Queen Victoria, werewolves. It's good fun nonetheless. FX and music are top. All hail Pauline Collins. James H says, amazing effects, a great horror story and bonus marks for the Jamie reference. Michael Storm, an enjoyable romp, but it feels like a simplified Terence Dick story, even as far as going as, uh, as rehashing Fang Rock by using a diamond to act as a focusing beam to destroy the threat. However, it oozes atmosphere and the werewolf transformation sequence is ace. Ian Winston says a perfectly formed one episode adventure if we ignore the Kung Fu monks and the one my kids all ask for over and over. Scary too. Joe Llewellyn, I love the Kung Fu monks in 19th century Scotland. Pretty good werewolf for the budget. Queen Victoria was right to tell those smug jerks off. I should have bought a bell, shouldn't I, for every smug reference. <laughs> Daniel Knight says an effective shocker to scare the kids. So... Yeah, I'm Sorry. noticing a trend. I am noticing a trend that the overall comments for the season are negative, and yet the individual comments for the episodes mm -hmm. are quite positive. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. No, well, no, good point. Sai, how do you okay. respond to Tooth and Claw? <clears throat> um, I'm going to go back to what Fraser said, where he said, this is a shopping list. Never, never Kung... go back to Fraser. No, 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 this time. Because Kung Fu Monks, Queen Victoria, Werewolf, and Russell T. Davis has the confidence to put all of those yes. in one 45-minute story when those could be the focus of three different stories, but he throws them all into the mix. And he's this is a this is a last-minute script as well, because the story from Stephen Fry, I think, fell through. So he's doing this at the last minute, and Russell at when he's thrown in at the deep end and has got to rescue something has got to write fast is often Russell at his best so I think this works because you've got that shopping list and he's just going for it and something my friend Tom said to me recently was that in series one one of the lessons they learn is from doing the empty child and the doctor dances where there's 
a slight irreverence to history that you don't get before that. So when you have The Unquiet Dead, it's a very reverential old Charles Dickens, Victorian London. But Stephen Moffat makes history sexy and brilliant. And so Russell is thinking, well, I could do that. And he does it brilliantly because he's a genius. And so he can suddenly do this story, which is basically just one great big chase. But you never notice that it's just one great big chase because it's so full on. And the pace is just bam, bam, bam. And you don't have time to stop and think until the very end. And then it's done. And it's great. So, yeah. I think everyone is doing this. And I think um, shout out for Eros Lynn, who directs this beautifully. The action is absolutely spot on. He paces it brilliantly. And he, yeah, he knows the the beats of this story. And it's, yeah, perfectly done. So, yeah, a definite thumbs up. And it's staying in from me. How did Eros Lynn go from this to fear her? I mean, it's absolutely one extreme to the other, isn't it? Right, I am also going to keep this one in. I think it's a great story. Um, first thing I'm going to pick on is Queen Victoria. Um, she's not the focus of this story because it's not specifically just about Queen Victoria, like you know Rose Parks, for example, or Agatha Christie. She's almost like a side character. So that could lead her to be shown in a fairly stereotypical way. And, and Rose certainly views her through stereotypical eyes because all she's worrying about is trying to get her to say, we are not amused. So she's buying into that kind of common perception. So I think it's really to RTD's credit, they absolutely rounds out Victoria. She becomes a very real, nuanced character and he treats her with respect. And Pauline Collins backs that up by giving a really solid performance. And I think we end up seeing her as a true character and not a caricature. She's a strong woman in a man's world. She's more than capable of standing up to herself. She shoots, as, as you said, Mark, she shoots Father Angelo. But interestingly, she doesn't take the credit for it. She says Captain Reynolds killed him um, because she kind of knows her place in the world. The line um, I wrote, my name yeah. is your majesty. Bang! <laughs> <laughs> Sassy bitch. It's because mm -hmm. she's, she's just said she's just a woman. She's standing up for herself. Um, she mourns the loss of her husband in a really moving scene around the dinner table where she said, the dead stay silent and we must mm. wait. And it's really quite chilling that moment. And obviously that resonates with David Tennant because he's thinking about the Gallifreyans. That works really well. Um, she commands a lot of respect, but I love the fact that she puts the sycophant in her place. So when Reynolds is over laughing at her joke, she says, I shall contain my wit in case I do you further injury. So she doesn't <laughs> well, take people do that in it yeah, they over laugh all right it wasn't that funny okay yeah. <laughs> <laughs> shut up you <laughs> you're the bloody expert at that all right <laughs> she's the one that notices the doctor's dropped his scottish accent so and she's wary of him all the way through it's really unusual for a doctor who story to go from beginning to end and a character to stay wary of the doctor right the way up to the very end usually at some point in the narrative they're won over but here she stays wary right to the end which ends in that scene as we've already talked about of her kind of uh saying that 
he is banished and exiled forever, which is great. And the, I only way, the only way it could be even better if you, at the end she'd gone, you two are so bloody annoying. Stuck. I banish you. <laughs> You're so irritating. <laughs> and one of the best bits is just the look of abject horror on her face when Rose and the Doctor hug. She is so appalled that these two characters are just hugging and showing emotions because, you know, that's against her Victorian values. And she even does the same when Robert and Isabel even though their husband and wife hug, she just looks aghast. So I think great, great character feels very real. I love the plot. It's a trap within a trap. It's not quite, sorry, Joe, but it's not quite Stephen Moffat's cleverness of hiding things in plain sight. But there are lots of clues dropped throughout the episode, like all the research that uh, Prince Albert has been doing. Not a euphemism. Um, and And... So we get all those clues and they come together and it is a trap within a trap. And I love the fact that we use moonlight to defeat the werewolf. And the explanation is that, you know, we're all made of, of water. We're 98% water and we can still drown. So a werewolf can still be killed by moonlight. So I thought it was really good. I love that plot and the visuals as we've talked about. There's so many good shots in here. One shot that we haven't called out so far that I must mention is where the Doctor puts his ear against the wall and the werewolf's on the other side, which kind of mirrors the Doctor and Rose at the end of Doomsday. That must have been done purposefully. Um, but yeah, there's just so much. The, the direction, the look of it, the starkness of the Scottish landscape at the beginning looks brilliant. Um, you've got the Kung Fu monks in their brilliant red against the drabness and brownness of the courtyard. Yeah, it's it's great. Love it. And, and shout out to the mill who actually had to employ a hair specialist to work on the werewolves. <laughs> it was worth it. Joe. I, w- I would say, though, you know, in counter to your uh, dismissal then of Rusty Davis over Stephen Moffat, at least he does bother to make it entertaining from scene to scene while he is hiding those things. <laughs> Sorry, I can't help myself. Um, nobody's mentioned the editing. Everyone's mentioned the direction, but the editing in this episode is what makes it work so well. All those cuts with the monks, all those cuts with the werewolf attacks. It, it's done so furiously. Actually, the episode can get away with being astonishingly violent in places but because the editing is so quick you don't quite see what's going on so the rest is left to your imagination which is a lot actually sicker than anything they could have shown me on the screen so those people have been eviscerated as far as i'm concerned um i think it's one of murray gold's best ever scores and he drives the pace of this episode throughout even the bits where all the uh the they're they're knocking the soldiers unconscious and they're preparing the dinner table and there's like a suspense and drive to those scenes uh with the music but then when we're running up the stairs and all of that that music is just gold the werewolf transformation music is brilliant i can hear it all that's i think is the the mark of a good score is if you can hear it without watching it um I mean, I've got Pauline Collins down as well. I do. I love that scene you were talking about, Rod, where she's at the dinner table and she says, oh, well, of course I miss him. Oh, completely. You know, all these little asides and nuances that she's doing in an episode that, frankly, is just a big Hollywood blockbuster, you know, Queen Victoria and a werewolf. Um <laughs> And the other thing I really, really love is I sat through, you know, many a Buffy the Vampire episode where Oz turned into a dreadful shaggy dog werewolf and do a bit where he jumped up behind the sofa and he's supposed to be scary. The most comical thing you've ever seen. Um, This werewolf, I think even now, 
looks really, mm-hmm. really good. CGI doesn't usually hold up this well. They were they were right to make that move to do it this way. And uh, yeah, just everything. The bit where he's on the glass, you know, like you said, the bit where he's up against the wall, sort of sniffing. All of those little and you can details. See its breath. Yeah, and, and everything. Uh, yeah, like Martha, the transformation sequence as well. When you see the man's jaw distend, and oh, it's just really, it's it's a brilliant piece of horror, as well as uh, a tight script in terms of plotting, and it's got tons of atmosphere. And you know, like people rat on the Doctor and Rose in this episode, but if we were in history and we met Queen Victoria, yeah, you'd be trying to make her say. say yeah. would, you'd be yeah. trying to make her say we're not amused. Of course you would. I just don't think Doctor Who fans like the Doctor and Companion having fun. I think they want them fucking tortured all the time and you know series nine Capaldi and Clara, you know, toxic relationships. <laughs> Whereas this is two people just having a laugh and it's wonderful. Yes, of course oh, it's going through. On the werewolf as well, the character options toy is massive. Yeah, it's like, huge, wasn't it? the size of like a normal figure. Yeah, it's great. But he doesn't have play make it difficult to stand up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Always so falling he, over. He towers yeah. over the little figures of the people. Yeah, it's massive. Oh, great. Right, so it's my turn next. So I am going to go for Army of Ghosts and Doomsday. So I will say from the outset that I fucking love this. <laughs> it's brilliant. Um, I can't give you really clear rational reasons for this because there's just so many moments and it's so... What Russell, I think, is really, really good at is emotion and building emotion in the audience. So I have basically just split this into thrills, laughs and tears, because that's what this story does to me. So thrills, let's start with the thrills. So we start off with Rose declaring that this is the day she dies. Okay, that's a bit of a cheat. (laughs) She's such a drama queen, isn't she? (laughs) Even more than you, Joe. No, not as much as me, no, but she is a drama queen. But to start an episode, that's a bloody good way to start the episode. And then suddenly there are ghosts everywhere. And then we find out that the Cybermen are ghosts. And then we find out that they're everywhere. They're across the world. And then it's Torchwood. We're finally reached Torchwood. And I love Murray's music cues. It's probably a bit early because the show hasn't come on yet. So we don't know the theme. But at this point... Oh my God, are you talking about the... That's the one. (laughs) With the little wobble board. I'd say the Rolf Harris wobble board, but he's been cancelled as well. (laughs) And then we meet Yvonne. I love Yvonne. I just I was gonna throw her in as her own category because Yvonne Hartman is just if you want good big finish, listen to the Torchwood Yvonne Hartman stories. She is just superb. Um, but Torchwood have been infiltrated, and then of course we get to the cliffhanger, what's in the sphere? And of course, all of us are thinking, well, obviously, we know what's in the sphere. It's Cybermen. And then that amazing reveal that it's the Daleks. I mean, that must be one of the best cliffhangers of all time. I think I probably screamed out. It when was that just... Dalek theme comes in. Yeah. What? Oh, 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 my God. Oh, it's amazing. That was just amazing. Then you've got the development of Dalek lore. We introduced the cult of Scarrow. We've got Daleks versus Cybermen. The first time since the ultimate adventure. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, only their second best uh, fight second against best each other. <laughs> We've got Mickey back. And I love the way it, it mirrors Rose in Partners in Crime that he just turns around and suddenly Mickey's there. 
in the control room. We've got Pete back. We've got Jake back. We've got the Genesis arc, which we've told is Time Lord technology. And it's a prison and it's got millions of Daleks in it. And then we've got the Battle of Canary Wharf. And I mean, just, just so many thrills in, in 90 minutes of TV. And it's all held together with fantastic direction, great visuals. Okay, some of them have dated a bit, but, you know, it is 18 years ago now. But, you know, the emotions and the thrills of this are second to none. So laughs. This is absolutely full of laughs. And no, I'm not going to mention the Ghostbusters joke. I'm leaving that one to one side. But I love the T. I know Russell does it quite a few times, does the TV clips, but oh. they are hilarious. We've got Listen Derek Okora. <laughs> Get out of my pub. We've got Trisha. We've got Derek Okora. <laughs> We've got the guy from the Pirate Planet pretending to be a police constable. What does I mean, that fucking woman say on Trisha? He's my ghost and I love him. I love him. <laughs> it's just brilliant. You just know there's so many people that will be up to that shit. Yeah, don't you? exactly. And he got Jackie Tyler back to Jackie, the queen of Doctor Who. I love the way she snogs the Doctor when he walks in. She knows it's making him super uncomfortable. She's looking at Rose as she's doing it, just saying, look, I'm making him squirm. She's brilliant. I love that she goes on board the TARDIS and the Doctor makes him a companion. The way he introduces her to Torchwood and he's winding her up. Saying, oh, she stared into the heart of the time vortex. She aged 57 years. <laughs> She's not very good on her pins. <laughs> She's very good, though, at making tea. Oh, it's great. Well, I say uh, good. <laughs> and then she meets Pete. Uh, as though there's never been anybody. I love that bit. She's oh, there's never been anyone else, Pete. And Mickey and I are just looking at each other saying, really? <laughs> bit like you do with Sarah. Well, who, who had the fruit in the dressing gown. <laughs> the fruit in the dressing gown. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, someone that's she was in the Christmas in. invasion. Yeah. Right. Yes, sleep out there. What about the fellow who let her the truck? Exactly. Just She's had plenty. Don't ask yeah. questions. And she really does want to know how rich Pete is. <laughs> how rich? How rich? No, I don't want to know. How rich? <laughs> On the stairwell when they're trying to find her and the doctor's saying, well, where are you? Where are you? She's, there's a fire extinguisher. <laughs> <laughs> and then right then, of course, you get Catherine Tate at the end. So, you know, good big laugh at the end with Catherine Tate doing a shtick. And then the final category, of course, is tears. Um Obviously, there are the big moments, but there's lots of little moments in this as well. I think Jackie wanting to believe that the ghost is her dad because she thinks he smells of old cigarettes. Again, it's just Russell Wright stuff that he can just do in one line, just makes it so real and believable. He is the absolute master of that. And I think that's a lovely moment. And the Doctor and Rose know that she's imagining it. And I think Jackie probably knows that she is as well, but she wants to believe that's her father. It's lovely. Um, Jackie thinking that Rose has changed in the TARDIS when they have that interchange said you know you'll see a woman in the future and that'll be Rose Tyler but it won't be you she's worried that her daughter is losing who she is again that's very emotional the meeting of Pete and Jackie of course that's given a long um, period for us to look and that's because those characters have become so important to this era of Doctor Who that we give that scene time to breathe and they are given their proper moments of coming together uh, and we're probably all in floods of tears if that was a Chris Chibnall episode you'd be complaining that the plot stopped for a long protracted emotional scene if Just Chris like... Chibnall wrote dialogue and scenes like that I would not be complaining <laughs> that's the difference <laughs> We've still yet to do two more this season's yet. Oh, one was enough for me. 
Um, and then obviously the big tears at the end when Rose gets taken away and we get Murray's big theme coming in and then they meet again on Bad, Ro uh, Bad Wolf Bay. I mean, who wasn't crying? I certainly was crying. Uh, and I will, although I've done my three, I am also going to give another shout out to Murray Gold, who I think generally fear her went a bit weird but apart from that I think Murray God we've mentioned him a few times but I want to particularly call him out does an amazing job in this episode and throughout the most of the season it's just a driving score all the way through he plays the emotions when he needs to I know lots of people say oh he tells you what you're supposed to feel but I don't care he is there he's doing the right job he's giving us a big bombastic orchestral um symphony he's giving us for this episode and i absolutely love it so those are my reasons that i was after watching this season i was really really sick of the backwards bell that he uses in every single story when there's a bit of jeopardy and it really drives me insane backwards but otherwise bell? What's yeah that? if you it's a it's a a particular sort of sound that he uses there's i I'd have to play it to you to, oh, to describe. Please do. It, it's in nearly every episode when there's a bit of jeopardy and danger, and it's really annoying after watching it back to back. Well, I thought there was. I mean, I think his music for this season is mostly excellent. Yeah. But there was one story where he just poured it on too much, and I was like, "Oh, shut up! I can't even hear the fucking dialogue. <laughs> shut up!" You know, this is my category, guys. Shut oh, up. Yeah, <laughs> Fingers on lips. Thank you. So I finished now. Anyway. <laughs> Were you putting that through then, Rod? I am absolutely putting yeah, where's that your through. Yeah, where's your part? Should we go to the... We had more comments on this story than any we other did. story. Well, we'll, um, try and, we'll try and rattle through them quickly. Well, the first two people have really kind of opened up a little bit for our first two comments. Um, so shall I start with the first one? Complicated cookie said the first half of 2006 was one of the hardest times of my life. I was struggling with very fresh, raw grief and barely able to function. By June, I'd reached a point where I was dangerously ill, being completely unable to express emotion about anything except my all-consuming loss. Then doomsday happened, and I cried, and I didn't stop for about 24 hours. I genuinely believe that an episode of Doctor Who saved my sanity, maybe even my life. This is the power that Doctor Who can have on us. Even when it's far from its best, it can still resonate and help someone in the most unexpected ways. I mean, there's still a criticism in there, even when it's far from its best. <laughs> but Stephen B, I'm going to tell you how this silly little show of ours became something that captured the heart of one rather important person to me and how she came to love the show that I loved for so long before I met her. And it was this series that did that. Doctor Who can tell any story. In series two, it does something that it's never done before. A will-they-won't-they they romance that delivers all the emotions of falling in love with somebody magical and then losing that love. This is why millions tuned in and why it remains the best series of all. Mm, two very heartfelt uh, summaries. Dylan Reese says, heartbreaking, action-packed and an absolute triumph. So many great moments, Jackie and the TARDIS, Pete and Jackie reuniting, the sphere opening and that ending. Oh dear, John Bensali. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. RTD's vision of who is frustratingly stunted. Modern day Earth tales with cheap and nasty pop culture make this the, the TV equivalent of a dog-eared 2006 copy of Heat magazine, plus an ending of OTT schmaltz that's undone two seasons later, making the whole thing a complete waste of time. I do think he's entitled to that opinion, though. Indeed. 
Jack Coyer says such a shame Freema Adjman is wasted in her only Doctor Who story. Daleks versus Cybermen was everything a 10-year-old me wanted. An action blockbuster bringing this period of the show to a close in heartbreaking fashion. The Donna Coda is jarring. Whatever happened to Freema Adjman? I know. She should have been He's being sarcastic. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> she ended up in Sense I'm... 8 with that scene with the massive dildo. That's, <laughs> <where she ended. laughs> that's a really good series, actually. That <laughs> scene weren't, though. I thought oh, you were going to say that's a really oh. good scene. <laughs> She's she Mr. McCoy in that as well. Not that scene. What, with the dildo? Scene. Not with the dildo. <laughs> no. Oh, no. Although, if you want to see McCoy up to some shenanigans, go see some of his BBV stuff where he's snogging <laughs> the nurses and stuff. Anyway, Daniel Knight says, another Graham Har- Harper two-part blockbuster which brings the Daleks and the Cybermen on screen for the first time. Apart from the Ghostbusters bit, I absolutely love it. And the ending, although watered down by Rose's later return in season four, was tear-jerking. That is a great point about them doubling back on this oh. ending. Fraser Gregory says, a lot of fluff and nothing built around two core concepts, Daleks versus Cybers and Rose leaving. Both of these are so well written, all of the sins are forgiven. Bad Wolf Bay still packs a punch today, even with the, oh God, smugness before it. (laughs) Keep it. He wants to keep it, though. Michael Storm suffers from trying to do the fanboy masturbatory fantasy. Masturbatory? Was he masturbating over Daleks versus Cybermen? <laughs> Michael Storm. And ultimately, is a letdown on that front. Luke Malloy says, a perfect, fun, barnstorming finale. Sassy, sad and iconic. Everyone remembers the beach scene. David Gillespie-Prack, imagine wrapping up your big Dalek invasion plot with a hand-waving piece of exposition just so you can spend the last ten minutes saying goodbye and going all emotional. But enough about the Dalek invasion of Earth and back to Doomsday. Jason Jason Thompson says a great finale if you overlook the usual RTD Deus Ex Machina ending with all the alien invasions Doctor Who's done over the decades how did it take until 2006 before we saw a monster in someone's home the ultimate yeti on the loo in tooting back that moment is chilling penultimately James H makes no sense but the huts par to carry it off I can't believe I've got to read this Paul Quinn <laughs> Paul Quinn I was I was going to edit you out but I thought I've got to put this in every just to show opinion the other side. is valid you keep telling me that apart yes. from this one Paul Quinn says the final scene with Tennant emoting all over the console room, weeping like a character from a smash hits photo case book and and Catherine Tate in full on bell end mode, bellowing, (laughs) what the hell is this place? Is the worst tonal shift since the death of Oscar Botcherby. Repellent. (laughs) Thank you, Paul. I wish he would come off the fence a bit, though. I'm never quite sure what he thinks. He is funny. Bless him. Right, so I've championed this one. Joe, are you going to support? hello. Hello. Are you going to support or throw it out? Of course I am. Um, I think a lot of people sort of focus on the the second half, but actually it's worth noting that Rusty Davis writes a brilliant penultimate episode. In fact, with Bad Wolf, Army of Ghosts, Sound of Drums and Stolen Earth, he writes the best penultimate episodes. He just knows how to build up to uh, that brilliant cliffhanger and really sort of generate the excitement. And I love the whole idea of the cracks in the earth and the Cybermen slipping through the cracks like that. Um, The sequence where, you know, where the Doctor uh, sonics the glass that whole, I just, I think that's a brilliant concept. 
Um, I really like in the second episode how the second we talk about closing the walls between the two dimensions and everyone's arguing about who's going to stay on what side that you feel in the pit of your gut something big is coming this is not going to end well in the desperation jackie's talking to rose rose is saying i'm not leaving the doctor and you just know you can it, it's like a good soap when you know when a good soap's leading up to a big twist and you sort of feel ah oh, something isn't right here you know most doctor who stories head towards the climax and you go oh, okay it's all going to be fine everything's going to be all right you sort of knew and and he does that brilliantly here um and what other doctor who story would offer out a 10 minute coda like this to a companion like russell does with rose he clearly loves that character um he's he's found a brilliant actress he's written a character with complexities as we talked about you know good and bad and he here he's given her like the the best hurrah you could give a companion that nothing tops this in the new series nothing is remembered as well as that sequence on bad wall bay and the two of them on either side of the wall slapping the walls her holding on to that um enormous lever and sort of being sucked away into the vortex all of that stuff it is unforgettable my mother phoned me up after watching this episode and told me how great doctor who was that night and that is the highest accolade you can ever give doctor who frankly um because she was so sick to death of it by the time i moved out um it's brilliant it is brilliant i think a lot of it is told in broad strokes i think a lot of it is done via sort of stylish set pieces rather than a plot that's constructed with a lot of like thought and substance and so much of it is told for emotions like you said rod but you just you if you get on that ride and you let it take you it's as impressive i think as probably doctor who's ever been and it's the point where everybody knew about doctor who this is the point where the public was most on board with doctor who ever i don't think we'll ever hit this height again i don't even think stolen earth and journey and quite hit this height for sort of water cooler talk the next day so yeah of course it's going for it it's pretty incredible fantastic so talking of slipping through cracks let's move on to Cy. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah god it's brilliant isn't it it's really 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 good what i found interesting this time was um you said some of the effects are dated some of the effects look stinky at the time particularly the daleks flying out of the genesis Arc yeah good. and they have aged really badly that's very poor cgi they just didn't have the budget to do that effect back then so i think about revolution of the daleks when they're all in the sky and that exactly you know? yeah and it's so much better um but it doesn't matter because this is wonderfully directed by Graham Harper, who does a superb job. And there are so many brilliant images in this that you've all sort of mentioned already. So I don't need to do that again. Um, so, but he's really good and it's so good to have him back. He is so, he handles this beautifully and he gets the emotional beats as well as the action. And you can see him wanting to push the action and push it as far as he can go. And I was watching the confidential about Doomsday before, just before we did this recording. And he was saying, and they let me do this. And I wanted to do this. And they said, yes, you can. And so, so all of that, he's trying to push the boundaries of what Doctor Who can do as an action show, as well as getting the emotional side and the funny side again. 
the Ghostbuster scene is dreadful and has <laughs> was dreadful at the time. And that's all I'm saying. Um, but also, I have such happy memories of watching Doomsday. So it was two days before my birthday. And in my living room, 14 Doctor Who fans packed oh into that God. living room on a very hot July day and watched that. And they laughed and they gasped and they cried at that. And then at the end... And then you watch the episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then at the end, everyone was like, was that Catherine Tate? Oh, my God. What's going to happen at Christmas? So, like Russell says, Doctor Who goes on and on and on. And, yeah, no, this is a great, great finale and rightly well remembered. So, yeah, it's a it's a definite brew from me. Mark. Well, <laughs> if, That's always on if I was on the fence about this, and I'm not saying I was, I might have been. You have all convinced me how wonderful <laughs> hey! these episodes are. I mean, it has a big job to do. It needs to write out Rose, who has been the biggest character across these new Who <laughs> up until this point. What do you think I was going to say? I thought you were going to say the biggest bitch. <laughs> like, like you said, everybody, this was Doctor Who at its height. Everybody knew David Tennant and Billy Piper and knew that she was leaving. How is this going to be done? It had a lot uh, of loose ends to tie up. Um, and it did it brilliantly, bringing back, you know, alternative Pete and McKeon and, and all of that as well. Um, I mean, you've all said all everything that I was going to say anyway in, in my notes. Um, yeah, I mean, you, I, of course it's going through. It has to. Yeah, Fabulous. I agree Great with stuff. everything you said. So, were gosh, you on I... the fence then? At one point, yeah. What were your bit. points against it then? Well, I just... I don't know. Just maybe the battle sequences went on a bit too long. Honestly, um, you're not happy when no, they're doing emotions. But, you're but not happy just, when they're doing no, battles. But it was, it was all the character stuff and stuff with Jackie and, yeah, and, and the humour. Um, and Yvonne... As well, and the the tragedy of Yvonne being yeah, you know, turned into Cyberman as well. Yeah, yeah, king and country. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, well, no, um... what is that clapping scene all about? I don't understand. Oh, I should say so. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, I don't like that. No, no. Happy day, happy day. <laughs> oh, I won't hear a word against Chris Oberman. She's brilliant. <laughs> Joe, it's yours. So we've got left New Earth, Girl in the Fireplace, and Rise of the Cyberman two parts. So, which are you going to go for? I would like to champion a Stephen Moffat story, if I may. Champion? I would. Yes. What? The Girl in the I Fireplace, can... which I think is an exceptional episode of Doctor Who. Practically flawless, in fact. There's one point against it, and that's it. I think sometimes Tennant gets a little bit caught up in Moffat's sitcom -y dialogue, and he takes a little while. He takes a couple of episodes to sort of get into Moffat's rhythm. And I do think there's a few moments in this where he sort of trips up on the dialogue. But aside from those few moments, he is given a great performance in this. But I basically want to focus on how this looks. Um, I think it has some of the most beautifully fluid camera work you're ever going to see. And the camera never stops moving in this. And it's gliding around these beautiful sets, whether it's the spaceship or whether it's the house. It never stops moving. It's got sumptuous lighting and the design is stylish as hell. 
Murray Gold's score is one of the best we have ever heard in Doctor Who. I will not hear a word against it. It is just, it's, it leans into that sort of, it's sort of a little bit childish. It's doing a sort of nursery rhyme sort of riffs at the beginning. And it does the romance brilliantly as well. He is perfectly suited. I mean, he's perfectly suited for all types of Doctor Who all the time, as we'll get to in another episode. But for this sort of stuff where he's really leaning into the emotions, he's just perfect for it. Um, and my last point is Sophia Miles, who <laughs> I've been reliably informed has been slightly cancelled recently. I don't know if that's the case or not. Slightly. I don't know what, she, I don't know what <laughs> what's she been up to everything <laughs> oh okay well well let's, let's you name it she's ignore it. her questionable behavior which i don't know about and just say she does give a very elegant very commanding performance in this um I, I, she's the best actor involved in this episode and she's in the title role and she just wafts through it with utter deportment it's just glorious to watch the bit where the camera swoops in and she's there, and the fella's about to chop her head off, the clockwork soldier. And she's like, oh, oh, this distressing noise, please. Let us remember that we are French. Oh, she's fabulous. So the Bin, Rose and Mickey, and let's take Madame de Pompadour on some adventures. Um, no, no, it's gorgeous. I mean, you guys are going to talk more about the plot, I'm sure. It is really robust, this plot. Uh it's beautifully assembled in a way that only Stephen Moffat can see. I can say nice things about him when he is on form and when he has a script editor reigning in his excesses and all of his annoying quirks, he is a superb writer. And I think everything he did under Rusty Davis is brilliant. It's some of the best Doctor Who we've ever seen. Again, this is, and this is another episode written, directed, scored, acted, everything works. It's beautiful. That's the only word, the way to you can sum up the girl in the five less. It is a beautiful episode of Doctor Who. It really makes me feel every scene is just sublimely executed. It's going through. Wow. Joe Champion Stephen Moffat, you heard it here first. Should we go to the comments? Mm. Fraser Gregory agrees with you. Nothing short of a masterpiece. It's endlessly watchable. Well directed with a perfect score and shows just how good a writer Stephen Moffat is. Darren Lit Roundels, I used to say this was my favourite of the season, but Moffat fatigue probably means I don't care as much now. But I ultimately enjoyed it for the production, performances, setting, costumes, atmosphere and music. Jason Thompson says, please boot this out. There's some jarring script editing failure with Rose being all smiles after a less than impressed reaction to Mickey joining in the previous episode and a story where the Doctor abandons his companions to be the romantic lead just does not work for me. In a show with a scope as Doctor Who, making a story about sex and romance is just the most boring thing you can fall back on. No imagination. I have heard this from him a few times recently on podcasts, and it's valid. John Bensalia, good candidate for the most overrated story ever. The Doctor suddenly making whoopee with Renette. <laughs> whoopee. <laughs> <laughs> He's got kids, so I wonder if he made whoopee in his life. <laughs> um, while abandoning his beloved Rose makes zero sense in the context of the season, plus the usual postmodern clever dialogue. Cool horse, though. Oh, Steve. <laughs> Stephen B says, Doctor Who does romance and knocks it out of the park. Moffat under RTD is superb and perhaps no better than here. Love and loss, thrills and jokes, fun and scares, nothing short of perfection born of a genius. James H, pretty robots, but a depressing foreshadowing of every Moffat plot to come. Lucy McCall, insubstantial, but I like the twist and the robot. 
and the clockwork robots are very creepy. I'm really surprised these comments are as critical as this. Dylan Reese, I thought this was the most wonderful bit of Doctor Who ever when it first aired. Stylish, touching, brilliantly conceived classic, although in hindsight, it does come across a bit like the Doctor is grooming her. Daniel Knight, bit overrated, and now find the idea of the Doctor discarding Rose for Annette a bit callous and undoctorish. The accurately titled Melvin Pena. This was the episode that tips the balance for me from it being the show I'm interested in to a show I'm obsessed with forever. We've all had that story, right? Yeah. Um, I feel like Rose's role and creativity in the Doctor's life has become so outsized in the past couple of decades. One thing I love about the fireplace is that it decenters Rose and shows that the Doctor has shifting priorities. Ian Winston says, yes, now we've had Riversong and Moffat's time traveller's wife plundering. The shine has come off it a bit, but it's still fantastic. And Sophia Miles, I might fancy her a bit. Plus, love, well, we never know it ending. Do you know what? Now he's done the time traveller's wife in this one. He never has to do it again, does it? Oh, wait. No, we'll have six series of it instead. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Storm, Warriors Gate as written by Jane Austen. Brilliant. <laughs> Joe Llewellyn, and I am not going to attempt an American accent. Exquisite production, great guest star, just beautiful, sad ending. Finally, Gareth Bowley feels like a rehash of the curse of fatal death. Crikey. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in on this one because you know I am a massive Stephen Moffat fan and do not hide my light under the bushel with that. Uh, and also I love the RTD era, so, you know... <laughs> It's a bit of a no-brainer, is it? And this is a Hugo Award-winning episode, and it looks glorious. So I don't really know where to begin. With. Okay, where do I begin with this? I hate this episode. I absolutely hate this episode. What? Yeah, this is just... He's been no. sitting on this. Oh, no. Hang on, what? Yeah, <laughs> I hate this. This episode just does not work for me at all. And I'll tell you what I write. Start with the plot. This is the most paper-thin plot. It just hinges on that final twist of the ship being called Madame de Pompadour. And it kind of reminds me of one of those old tales of the unexpected, where the writer's <laughs> got a great idea for a twist, and they've got to fill 22 minutes of screen time to get That's to that all twist. Stephen Moffat episodes. What are you talking about? No, no. <laughs> This is worse. It's got 45 minutes to fill, and I hate with what it's filled with, but we'll come to that in a minute. Joe, you said there are no wow. plot gaps in this. There are so many plot gaps in this. How the hell can a horse walk through? Madame de Pompadour just walks through with Rose and Mickey into the ship. Nobody else does. There are time windows everywhere. How can yeah, you can go in? in and out. It's oh, a door. Bollocks. It's bollocks. Why is a clockwork android hiding <laughs> under the bed? When did an android It's not just the doctor trying to groom her, you know. <laughs> Come to that. Who made those androids? The ship are all dead. They've, they've taken them for parts. Who's made these clockwork androids? You go and watch, you know, they did those little vignettes for series two. They do explain about the I'm robots watching the episode. I'm oh, watching the episode. A bit like Pond Life and that in series seven. Right, go on. And how does Madame de Pompadour get to read the doctor's mind, apart from the fact there's a bit of convenient plotting? As, as has already been mentioned, completely wastes Mickey coming on board. It has nothing to do. Rose is sidelined. So the plot is non-existent and it all depends on one element. And I hate that element. And that element is the relationship. I do not like or buy the central relationship between the Doctor and Madame de Pompadour. 
Now, I don't agree with people that are saying, oh, he's grooming her, because I see that quite a bit. I disagree with that, because when he sees her as a seven-year-old, he's just intrigued by what's going on. And I, so I disagree. That <laughs> oh, any... is he? <laughs> <laughs> he's intrigued by what's going he's on. He's very intrigued by what's going on. Okay. Yeah. Okay, should we move swiftly on from that? <laughs> oh, dear. I meant to say, he's trying to work out what's going on. Is that better word? <laughs> No, please move on. <laughs> Should we move on from that bit? But I, he doesn't fall for her until he meets her when she's 23, when she's an adult. And that's the scene. They have, they meet and there's just chemistry straight away. But it plays like a Richard Curtis film. He feels like Hugh Grant and Richard. This does not feel like the Doctor. At the end of that first meeting, within 60 seconds, he's snogging her and bragging about it. That is not the Doctor. I'm going to wave placards. Is this now. is not my Doctor. Hate that. We know that he's got love for his companions. We've just seen Sarah Jane and we know how close him and Rose are and in the future we'll see River but I will remind you and I know this is the contradiction of Stephen Moffat but I am going to remind you what River Song written by Stephen Moffat says about the doctor he's the doctor he doesn't go around falling in love with people and if you think he's anything that small or that ordinary then you have the first idea of who you're dealing with that River Song or is that Jason Thompson <laughs> no, that's River Song. You can never see them two. together. No. no. <laughs> I've seen Jason Thompson in a She's silver dress. She's got big hair, you know. I've been those weeks. <laughs> but here we see the Doctor acting <clears throat> as a teenager. He's crushing over someone that he's just met, literally within 60 seconds. And you cannot use the excuse that he's in awe of her because of her achievements, which he reels off. Because he does that. He finds out who she is after he's snogged her. I just don't buy the relationship. That's not what the Doctor does. That is not my Doctor. I don't buy the chemistry. I don't think Sophia Miles has the range or charisma to pull it off. And oh, just the whole man. thing is just uncomfortable. Teenage crush. That isn't... It's hideous. And the other reason I dislike it, if you need any more, <laughs> no, is that god-awful scene where the Doctor pretends to or doesn't pretend to be drunk. <laughs> it is just hideous. I love David Tennant, but that scene is so ill-judged, badly played. Oh, in summing up, all I'm going to say is David Tennant is allergic to horses, so he struggled filming this episode with the horse, but he didn't struggle as much as I did watching the bloody thing. Oh, well done. It is out. Boys, will you oh please bring God. some semblance of normality to this conversation? <laughs> Sigh. Well, I don't like this very much either. I agree that it is absolutely beautifully made and the clockwork droids are brilliant and all of that but rod has persuaded me to go to the dark side <laughs> here and i think this is might be rod's um blink for me the, you, you know how I've, you know my big problem with it is all the way through we're told that madame de pompadour is the, one of the most amazing women who ever lived but in no way is this demonstrated throughout the story at all. Um, she is written really blandly, I think. And Sophia Miles isn't quite up to playing this remarkable woman. This is how it feels to me. I, It's a classic show, um, tell, don't show. There is no hint of her remarkableness in the scenes that she's got here. Um, I think, again, this is a, the season of 
the story of the Doctor and Rose. And to do this story in this season feels completely and utterly out of place. It doesn't work for me because if the Doctor can go off and have a relationship and go and dance... <laughs> He's dancing with this woman. Um, that, that really, really, that has always really bugged me. It's time for every little boy has to learn how to dance. Well, fine. Um, but <laughs> is you it know, too late if, to phone up Fraser Gregory and have him on this one? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I just, I just feel that if this is the grand love story between the Doctor and his companion that we've been told, then. She should have severe warning bells going off at this point that he could just go <laughs> off and have this relationship with someone else. Um, you know, and the thing that that this time really bugged me was the fact that um, the Doctor uses the, the windows to walk through. And so obviously he can't ever go back and meet her if he was so that much in love with her. Why didn't he just get in the TARDIS and go and see her? You know, there is no reason whatsoever that he couldn't. And I know you can say that for a lot of Doctor Who stories that he could just jump in the TARDIS and sort this. But in this story, particularly, there is absolutely no way that he could just not go back and see her if he loved her that much. Then that doesn't ring true. But the music is absolutely beautiful. The clockwork droids are one of the most beautiful creations in the whole of Doctor Who. I think they look magnificent and they're a real brilliant Moffat threat of something that is quite mundane, that you hear the ticking and you know they're there. That works brilliantly. But the whole thing doesn't quite come together, although I did like the um, Tales of the Unexpected Twist at the end. I thought that was nice. Like, even if you say it's like it's got style over substance, I don't think there's many Doctor Who stories that have this much style. Like, it's no, maybe not. Gorgeous. No, I think it is, it is beautiful. But again, some of the effects work isn't quite where they need it to be, and the horse crashing through the mirror doesn't really come off. But yeah, they tried. And I'm not going to damn Doctor Who because an effect doesn't work. But when you're hinging your hero moment around that, you've got to be sure you're going to be able to do this. I never thought I'd be the... Please, Mark. <laughs> I didn't think I'd be the one person defending the one Stephen Moffat episode. Save it's already me. out. It's already out. Sire uh, si yeah, si Mia voted absolutely. it out. Oh, well, I I mean, only, only Doctor Who can weave historical France and this sci-fi spaceship made out of body parts together. And I think it's beautifully woven together like a tapestry at the palace of versailles oh, i think oh, it is wonderful oh, very good. <laughs> you I could mean, have said is... in castrovalva but okay. <laughs> <laughs> i mean this is stephen moffat's uh, draft one of river song time traveler's wife that was my yeah. first number we only, need... on we only well. needed one we needed. draft we only yeah. needed this draft i think um i don't i think the doctor is just I don't think he's in love with her. I think he's just excited to meet her. He's just made this connection. It's not like this huge love story. And there's the tragedy that um, that he can't control the times that they they see each other. I, I just really like that idea. Um, and, and the ending, don't you think the ending is quite emotional? I think it's a really sad ending where he goes back and, and, and she's gone. Um that's good. I like that. Yeah, because whether it's a lover or whether it's a friend. Yeah, I think he's just treating her as just someone amazing that he's met 
in history. I d- I've, she I leads know. him off by the hand to go and dance like Sai no, says. It's no. so... No, no, no. 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 But when Sai suggests that they're going to have adventures together, it's not we're going to have adventures together and fuck. It's we're going to go no. and see the stars. Yeah, he's there. Just like that's, he does that's with all his companions. It. That's how I'm taking it. And... I think you guys are just a bit kinky. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Mark. And, and, it's, and after, especially coming after... Sarah Jane, Rose is just sidelined and she's not aware of this sort of tragic relationship playing out through time. She's just, she is sidelined left to uh, just in the spaceship for like, I don't know, five hours or something. She says, well, this whole relationship, this whole, you know, years and years of Renette's life and the doctor has, has gone by. I think that's a really great idea. And the robots are a beautiful design. So I I, I like this and one. Sets, I really enjoy and it. And the costumes. And the And the location well. work. Yeah. And the lighting. Oh, it's gorgeous. Yeah. Oh, here he comes, the oncoming storm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'm watching a story. I want to believe in the story and the character. I'm not sat there looking at moving wallpaper. So yeah, it looks beautiful, but I want some substance. And the substance here is shite. Never so, before <laughs> in the history of Strictly have your or my opinion been so opposed. To say well, this has no substance is insanity. In your opinion. In my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go. So, Girl in the Fireplace is the second one to fall. Wow. Just behind wow, Fear Her. Love you. <laughs> <laughs> so incandescent. incandescent. <laughs> He's incandescent at the moment. <laughs> it's He's his just... third Third He's about story. to go out and murder four kittens. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, should we do the last set of comments before we come to the last two stories? So oh, right. okay. back to Mark and Sai. Ian Winterton says, A bloody marvellous season and one I've watched over and over again with all three of my kids as they've grown up. After the miracle of season one, this cemented the show's uh, return and launched it into the stratosphere where it stayed until the RTD era ended. Um, Big Orange Michael says, I was intrigued to see where New Who would go when this was first broadcast. I'd say it's a bit of a mixed run. I find the first half more satisfying than the second. There's an early darkness to Tennant's Doctor that isn't there later in the series. Mega Slippers says, I was 12 when it came out, so it's brilliant. It's very difficult to break through the thick lacquer of nostalgia to begin criticism beyond, I don't like the girl in the fireplace as much as other fans seem to. The Idiot's Lantern was a shitter, though. (laughs) (laughs) I still can't quite get over her, and you swear. (laughs) Uh, Crashed Dummy says it's definitely the weakest RTD season, and Tennant and Rose were much too toxic together. They are point-blank bullies at one point. I've mellowed to some fun episodes, and the final two-parter is brilliant, almost redeeming the whole series. Matt Dennis says, don't get the hate this series has suddenly started getting. Series 2 has a perfect character arc that is laden with hubris, scattered throughout some fab stories that really test the Doctor and Rose emotionally. Uh, Dan Hollingsworth says, I love Series 2, but the dynamic duos descent into smugness. (laughs) (laughs) And we're so good at space-time adventuring can be a bit much at times. Some great episodes, though. Lovely to have Graham Harper back directing the show dave rennie says it wasn't a bad season it's just not as good as the other four seasons in rtd1 
The best is the impossible planet two part, a very deep look at faith, fear, and the soul. Andy Parkinson says, uh, what was on initial viewing a good season? I now find myself skipping. Pete Lambert says, they're both so smug and annoying. Get in a lift with them. (laughs) Never mind explore the universe. She's not your Sarah Jane. Leave the little girl alone, you creepy weirdo. I was on my way to my wedding. Um, <laughs> Gareth Bowley says the Doctor and Rose are insufferable and the stories are embarrassing Ooh, insufferable and Osian Thomas says truly underrated I understand that it has, it has some stinkers like the Idiot's Lantern and Fear Her but past that you've got episodes which are brilliant also I can't see the hate for Rose but I do enjoy the dynamic between her and Tennant and Dan Pin, Series 2 firmly established Doctor Who in the public consciousness, building on the success of the previous series. I love this on first viewing. Definitely more hits than misses. However, I'm glad we only had one series of 10 and Rose. Fabulous. So we are back to our final two stories. So we've got Rise of the Cybermen and New Earth. Mark, it's back to you. Which do you okay. want to select? Okay, I'm going to talk about New Earth. That sounded very much through gritted teeth. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not the strongest start to a series, is it really? Um, did we need a follow-up with Cassandra? I don't think we did. Um, <laughs> Character <laughs> options did. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, for the merchandising, maybe. Bring down Woolworths. <laughs> I thought, it's just more of the same stuff with Cassandra again. And you've got this body swap storyline. We've only just had uh, Ten and Rose together in the Christmas Invasion, and now they're completely apart, half playing different characters half the time. It's doesn't look particularly great, I don't think. Um, I think it's quite a silly solution uh, where the yeah. Doctor gets all this random bags of coloured liquid, um, and they've they've he's going down the lift just purely for some action in this story. What he washes a couple of the zombie people, and then, and then everyone has to touch each other, uh, and then suddenly they're cured, and you've got all these like bemused extras sort of walking around, uh, being like, oh, "You're ill, you're ill. No, you're better now. You're better now. Now look, look like you're you're okay now." Anyone who um, says he can't just... write an ending is talking nonsense, <laughs> aren't they? It's just a bit silly, and and you've got the face of Bo who just appears just because it's part of the story arc for for much much later on. Why is the face of Bo there anyway? Because he just says his one line and then zaps out of there. Doesn't make that any is sense textbook to me. enigmatic, if you ask me. And. Uh... Yeah, I just don't really like the, the comedy in this at all. Uh, you have to remember, Mark is, Mark is not a fan of the Graham Williams era, so this camp comedy is not his shit yeah, at all. Yeah, it's not the right stuff. I just don't think it should have started the season in this way. Do you like Doctor Who, Mark, by the way? I just need to I do. I just didn't realise when I watched this series back. Excuse me, you just said the girl in the fireplace was amazing. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's just a bit of a cheap runaround. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Um, so... But yeah, I didn't realise the series back how many that I wouldn't enjoy on, <laughs> on more repeat viewing. I did as we were watching them. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we go to the comments? Yes. Jack Coyer said, tricky to judge as episode one because really it's just a filler episode two. And as such, it's fine. Strange to get Tenon playing a different character so quickly, but it's a decent comedy showcase for him and Billy. Bit of a convenient solution, unfortunately. Dylan Reese, just 18 months prior, you couldn't imagine seeing anything like this on British TV. At the time, it was big, brash sci-fi that's both camp and touching. Sure, the ending doesn't hold together, but who cares? Stephen B said, New Earth isn't a good Doctor Who episode, but nine million people don't care. <laughs> they true. won't see this new Doctor and Rose get on and, well, just look at them. We get space reasons to allow the we to not count their kiss, but the not we get to see them snog. Also love that textbook enigmatic line. Oh, of course he loved it. Fraser Gregory, a perfectly reasonable lightweight runaround to break the new Doctor in properly. Not much to it, but just doesn't need to be. Keep it. Daniel Ronsley says it's a secret favourite of mine, endlessly quotable, and contains one of Billy Piper's best performances. John Bensalia, who I'm going to predict didn't enjoy this. I would say so. Any uh-huh. goodwill instantly vanishes. Superficially, it looks good, but the turbid, turgid, uninspired plot is paper thin. RTD's cut price Austin Powers dialogue takes the cringeometer to new levels of desperation, while Tennant already stumbles, failing to manage rage or humour. Michael Storm says a stronger opening for than usual for RTD, and the post-title scenes suggest this is sometimes later than leaving the Powell estate, judging by the Doctor and Rose's relaxed banter. It's also a rarity in TV Who that it's a body swap story. David Gillespie Pratt, worse than a bunch. Tone is all over the place, with some effects well below the standard we'd seen. James H says space medicine, courtesy of Terry Nation, works <laughs> very differently to Earth medicine, but when the story is this much fun, it doesn't matter. James, uh, sorry, Lucy McCall. James McCall? The end was surprising and moving, but I began to lose patience with all the body swapping. And Daniel Knight says, better than its reputation, some of the comedy is good, some not so good, but we have a nice conclusion to Cassandra's character. Plus, Billy Piper wears a wonder bra. Can I just ask, did did anybody on this call notice or care about the wonder bra? You're talking to the wrong audience. It's the wrong demographic. Luke Malloy, Dylan Reese, Daniel Uh Knight, Fraser Gregory. If they were on this call, they would all notice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can I take this one? You can take that one, Joe. Uh, I think this is one of the worst episodes of RTD1 by a country mile. For all the reasons Mark said there, I do think this, when I watched this, I was appalled at how dated it looks. And I was like, oh, God, is the whole set. And then we went to Tooth and Claw. <laughs> I was like, oh, thank God, my memory wasn't completely, you know, wrong. Some of this looks terrible. The direct is this who does this? James James Hawes. James Hawes. Unbelievable. All the stuff that's done in that weird wing of the hospital, which is just some back stock room somewhere with a load of pipes. It just looks terrible. Uh, And the hospital itself looks really cheap. Um, I think the CGI doesn't look too great when they're on the hill. Everything's clearly and those weird cartoony cars coming in. Like this has dated really, really badly. And the picture grading as well. The lighting makes it look very cheap. All the Yeah, so I was really unimpressed by just generally the production value on this. Um, I think it was a stupid move to have Tennant not take part in his first episode and then be in a body swap episode for his second episode. So it isn't until Tooth and Claw where we actually get 
a full adventure with his doctor. That is a really baffling choice. As fun as he's having with it, and I like the camps, all that, oh, I'm beating out a samba. You know, I like all that stuff, but it is a weird choice. Um, and how RTT can usually straddle tones really confidently, but he goes from like high comedy to horror to tragedy in this and it jars there's something he's just not got a through line with it and i'm not quite sure what it is i think i agree with mark that cassandra's not as good as in her first story she was the highlight of the end of the world you know acidic barbs she was the right cow bag her and rose together it's like two cow bags together the tv just lit up whereas in this she gets some good lines, but it's not uh, Zoe Wanamaker playing her for the most part. And that was the joy of her in End of the World. So watching everyone do sort of cod Zoe Wanamaker impressions is it's just nowhere near as fun. That that dreadful performance from that woman climbing up the lift shaft. <laughs> do you remember her? <laughs> She's going, oh my God, I'm disgusting. It's like, oh, it's awful. Um... <laughs> I want to say, I think the final scene where Chip goes up to her and says that you're beautiful, that's one of the best scenes mm -hmm. in the Rusty Davis era. And it's it's so movingly played and short, but it's got fuck all to do with the rest of the episode. Um, in isolation, that is an amazing scene. It's, it's weird. It's not as funny as it seems to think it is. It's not as sexy as it seems to think it is. Um, yeah, that fucking ending with all those medicines what the hell is that all about i mean i've seen some lame endings to doctor who stories but that is potentially the worst the most insulting at least you know and i've sat through the wedding of with a song but this is worse than that well i've sat through a reckoning in the uk so there we go <laughs> kill the spiders <laughs> No, no, uh, there. No, it's got to go. This, this is RTD's weakest script, I think, by a mile. Sai. Oh, I can't disagree with anything either of you have said. It's it's really not good at all. But if we're going to look for some positives, because there are some positives, the cat nuns look brilliant and they're really well played. They're three brilliant actresses playing those, two of whom we will see again, one in the same role, one brilliantly as as martha jones's mother so you know fair play to russell he gave her something better to do another cow bag he writes amazing yeah, cows he does he? Mm -hmm. um i quite like billy playing cassandra i think she does that that quite well and she's having fun with it and i do like those early scenes where they're both going up in the lift and poor old rose is coming out looking haggard and wet and having and the doctor comes out looking smart and wonderful i think those are good it's lovely to see the lift going up shot again from series one and <laughs> see that again throughout the season they got but, some good money out of that didn't they? yeah <laughs> but they're hampered by bad weather when they're trying to pretend they're having this wonderful time with apple grass and the wind <laughs> is blowing and the rain is howling in their faces and it's absolutely um they should have just written that off and done that in a studio and done some scenes in the studio because it doesn't look good it doesn't sell it and as much as they're they're trying their best poor old david tennant and billy piper are yeah, so are saddled with that, and it's not good. So, no, it's a misfire, but it does get a great sequel. And so for that reason, it's we it's worth having. But yeah, it's a bin it from me. 
some new earth is going to fall okay well i was going to give this a pass because i hear what i hear what you're saying and i agree with a lot of what you're saying it does look surprisingly cheap and so overlit i think a few stories this season have struggled with being really overlit and some things even army of ghosts and doomsday have scenes that are really really brightly lit but because of the pace and the energy and the storytelling that's going on there we kind of ignore it a little bit because it fades into the background amongst everything else here i think it's it's more prominent and i absolutely hear what you're saying but for me i maybe i took it slightly differently than you guys not when i've revisited an awful lot um i'm re-watching it again for this with a critical eye on it wasn't as it wasn't as light and frothy as many others rtd openers because it has got that seriousness is making all the um inferences about animal experimentation with all the people with the plague so there's a bit of a message going on there which is slightly different to his usual kind of opening episode shtick with jadoon or adipose so it's got a little bit more to it i think he quite balances the storylines between something nefarious going on in the hospital and the return of cassandra and the face of Bo. i kind of think he balances them quite well but i can accept what you guys are saying um i find it generally quite funny i agree with you so i think uh rose billy plays it really well um look at me i'm a chav i think she does that really well overdone it is about overdone but it's an opening episode and openers tend to be a little bit broader um so yeah i quite like it the disinfectant in the lift that is very funny when they first get it again it's another Chekhov's gun because that's the solution at the end so it's kind of hidden in plain sight which is quite nice um i think david tennant plays it quite well in this he's, he has got some scenes later on in this series where he falls over horribly ghostbusters being one and obviously the drunk scene in the girl in the fireplace but here i think he plays it quite well he's got the swagger he's got the compassion he shows a bit of anger he's got the quirkiness but it's quite toned down quirkiness when he's looking for a little shop um like you said again there's great great makeup um yeah generally i i quite like it i wouldn't say it was the greatest episode but i'd be prepared to give it a pass but i understand it's being evicted so out it goes so Cy, we come to you you have got rise of the cybermen and the age of steel Right. This one I found to be a surprising stinker. I was not impressed with this on the rewatch at all. I think there are are huge missteps and huge things that are problems. The way that Mickey is treated is absolutely awful. He is treated appallingly. And this is the Doctor and Rose at their worst, I think. Um, a, that scene at the start of the, the story where he's made to hold the switch while they tell their wonderful story about how brilliant things are, they're horrible to him. And then when Rose runs off and and Mickey quite rightly says, oh, it's always her and never me, and, it, and the fact that he might have some emotional attachment to someone, I think that they even discount that that could possibly be a thing is really, it's really awful writing. And a lot of this, I think, has a lot of really terrible, clunky writing that was contrasted with the elegance of the other two-parters in this year. Um, I'm not sure all of this quite works, um, sort of is pulled off. So the idea of the Cybermen rising here is is good, but we're not we're sort of straight into this parallel earth 
and the first thing Rose sees is her dad. I mean, <laughs> the chances of that are, are wow, <laughs> you know? And just think there are more elegant ways you could have done this, but it's a parallel world, of course, and and stuff. But I think what really hampers the Cybermen story is Roger Lloyd Pack. <laughs> I'm sorry, that is an absolutely appalling, unfought through performance. And how they let him get away from it. Please do the live side, please. Body of steel. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, how will you do that from beyond, beyond the grave? The grave. <laughs> I'm just what I was thinking as I was watching it. Give that part to Don Warrington and give Roger Lloyd Pack the president role. And this would have been instantly yeah. much better because Don Warrington is so bloody good. Member of his Rassilon in Big Finish. Oh, you know? his Rassilon. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I just come away and, and also... Um, Right, so if we're talking bad performances, I'm also going to single out Noel Clark, who usually gets a bit of a pass, but his performance as Ricky is <laughs> it's appalling. It's oh god, he just grimaces his way through it. It's played so broadly, and this is back to season one Mickey in Aliens of London. It's a performance that hasn't been fought out, and Graham Harper is usually all over this stuff. And I don't know whether it's just there is too much going on that he can't keep a handle on all of it. And maybe his confidence at coming back to Doctor Who has risen by the time he does Army of Ghosts and Doomsday, which is directly after this. Um, maybe he's a bit more in the groove by then, but maybe this is just a bit too ambitious. Also, I'm going to say the stomp although i love the design of the cybermen i think they look beautiful the stompingness of them is absolutely awful and the thing that made the cybermen when i was little that i remember from from the target books and from earthshock is that they're quiet and they're in the background and they're not clonk 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 like a clockwork robot that i had when i was 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 young I think that's a terrible misstep and we're saddled with that for years after this because of that decision. And they're just stomping robots with brain human brains put into them and they're not proper Cybermen. But on the plus side, Mrs. Moore is great and I really like her. Um, that scene where the Cyberman's emotions are turned off, echoes, parts of spare parts. But as a genesis of the Cybermen story, it's not as good as it should be. And yeah, I just come away thinking, why, why Rose, are you in floods of tears at Mickey leaving when you've treated him so absolutely appallingly? I mean, that's, I'm not sold on that at all. And I'm not sold on this story. I'd have more respect for him if he turned around and went, you know what, you're a bitch. I'm going. Yeah. <laughs> He's got a better off with Jake, though, hasn't he? So. Yeah. Well, they cut the line, though, didn't they? They did, really, yeah. Sign of the times. Mm. So, right. um, yeah, so this one I'm binning, I'm afraid. 
Right, let's go to our last set of comments. Fraser Gregory is going to agree with you, Si. He says, oh RTD God. does its best with a chilling scene of a Cyberman remembering their pre-conversion life, but otherwise the Cybers are done wrong, lumbering generic robots. Trigger brings value, as does the alternative Earth, but still a miss. Bin it. Stephen B, sheer spectacle, and why shouldn't it be? Cyber came to mean something additional in 2006, and the threat of the rise of the Cybermen from our own internet and comms technology is all the more credible now than Kit Peddler's biotech angle could first imagine. Daniel Knight says, bit of a blockbuster, lacking in depth. Well directed by Graham Harper, but Roger Lloyd Pack is terrible. <laughs> Kill him! <laughs> <laughs> Dylan Roos, I have always and always will love this story. Seeing those vast armies of Cybermen was something I couldn't have imagined in my fanboy dreams. Some of the most gripping Doctor Who I'd ever seen. Dylan Reese has mentioned his dreams an awful lot. He had a fever dream before. He's now got nah. dreams about Cyberman. Getting a little bit worried about Dylan. Oh, do I get John Bensalia? Sorry, John. Here we go. Reaching for epic movie and failing way short, despite Graham Harper's ace direction. Too many knuckle-suckingly awful lines. Panto villain, Lumic. Rose and Tennant channeling Magnus Pike. And Murray Gold's abysmal score makes this unintentionally laughable. James H, basically no relation to spare parts, yet Mark Platt gets a mention in the credits, presumably because RTD wanted to share the blame for this Sean Best. <laughs> Chat Coyer says this is a great techno thriller showing a world where the Doctor and Rose don't seem to be present. A fitting exit for Mickey, who finally gets the hint. The scene where the homeless people get scooped up to be converted devastated 10-year-old Jack. Oh. Oh. Michael Storm, an average runaround with Roger Lloyd pack packing in a performance that makes Paul, ba Paul Darrow look restrained. Here we get the thing of Russ T. Davis trying to build on the success of Are You My Mummy as a catchphrase with delete. And finally, Dan Hollingsworth says the new Cybermen look excellent, but make me yearn for the quiet, sinister 60 ones. Please, no delete catchphrase. <laughs> so, Mark, Mr. Happy. <laughs> are you are you in or out with rise of the cyberman well i was i was surprised going back to this because it's a graham harper uh and i think we all high uh hold him in high esteem as a great director of doctor who but yeah i was disappointed um i mean performances yep roger lod pack he's no um Kevin Stoney, is he? He's more. He's no Chloe Webber, is he? No. <laughs> more of a Beryl Reed than a Kevin Stoney in terms of cyber <laughs> people. Um, but also Colin Spall. I thought he was pretty dreadful. Colin Spall, my mate's Graham Harper. Um, <laughs> I, I think when it's Roger Lloyd Pack and Colin Spall together, those you scenes bitch. are so <laughs> just. <laughs> <laughs> so cringeworthy. I really, yeah, I just couldn't couldn't watch that. Um, the stuff with Rose and her dad. I mean, we've gone through a lot of stuff with Father's Day in the previous series. Did we need to sort of go over that ground again? The parallel world is an interesting idea, but I feel like the way to go with a uh, a Genesis Cyberman story is world enough and time. If it was that kind of uh, world that they'd gone into. I feel like, and, and it had that more of a darker atmosphere, something well, like that. Can I interject I for a like... second? 
What is so great about the genesis of the Cybermen in World Enough and Time? Because I agree it's a great episode. I don't think it at all tells the genesis of the Cybermen. It just shows a, a load of Cybermen being converted, which is exactly what this episode shows. No, but the, yeah, but in that, that's showing like the the population needing to do that. That's the you know the original idea of the, of the Cybermen. This is just Roger Lloyd Pack. Just yeah, rounding loads of people just up, rounding people and up and factory turning them into churning out yeah, That's yeah. terrifying. No, I'd... no, that's not oh, okay. I'm so sorry. No, and maybe this could have been a more effective just one part, taking out some of the uh, the Tyler stuff, maybe taking out some of the Mickey stuff and and tightened it up a little bit more as a as an action packed one parter rather than two. I don't think. Um, no, I, I, I really didn't enjoy this actually this time round. So right. sorry. Uh, I'm going to go for this one to save uh, Joe to make this casting vote because I'm going to save this one. I quite like this being a Genesis the uh, Cybermen because obviously we've referenced in the series and we go on to reference the Cybermen evolve in every community at every time. So we're in a parallel world. So why aren't they slightly different takes on Cybermen? I think that's perfectly justified. Um, in Dalek, obviously, Russell reintroduced the Daleks by having just one. Here he brings the Cybermen back in a Genesis story, which is a different way of doing it. And obviously we've just done our season 22 um, commentary. And unlike Attack of the Cybermen, which uh, we've just recently suffered through, which mined all the previous cyber stories, I think this focuses on lots of the elements of the Cybermen, which make them quite unique. So I disagree with you. I think we do see the reason coming in for being. And yes, it is because Roger Packloid Lumic is trying to extend his life, but that's a perfectly justifiable way. That's what Kit Peddler's original genesis, the Cybermen, was, was to replace um, parts that aren't working in the human body with cybernetic parts. So I think it's completely in keeping. You see the conversions. The conversions are really graphic. I don't think we've ever seen conversions done more graphically. I love the implacability of the Cyberman. There's a brilliant scene where they're chasing Ricky and Mickey through the streets and they kill Ricky. And there's just a moment of complete silence. The music oh, drops, the stomping yeah. stops. And, and you just, just see their eyes looking exactly. through the fence. I think that is such a chilling scene because it just stops everything and they hold on silence for a while. I think that's brilliant. And then Mickey runs away again in silence. That really gets the power of Cybermen. You see their drive. Yes, we get the quoted line, you will be like us. And we get the removal of their emotions, which leads neatly into the conclusion. So we're seeing everything that Cybermen should be. I also take exception to the fact that people say, oh, they're stompy Cybermen. That's not how they used to be. These are not the same Cybermen. These are a different breed of Cybermen. They are created in secret by John Lumick in his factory. I they, think people they... are saying, though, Rod, that that's just a bit embarrassing, that oh, they're I stomping find... about the place. I don't find it embarrassing. I kind of think they come across like the Iron I'll Man suggest suits. you go to the shops tomorrow then and stomp all the way there and back and tell me whether you're going to be embarrassed by that or not. <laughs> yeah, do I have to dress up as a Cyberman? Yes. Okay, I'll do that. <laughs> um, I... But actually, I'll conversely throw that at you, Joe. The Cybermen voice changer became the best-selling toy of oh, 2006. Another so clearly... interminable Nicholas Briggs monster voice. Oh, <laughs> bring back the Moonbase voice. You <laughs> well, belong it shows, to us. It shows that despite moaning minis on this call, the Cybermen... <laughs> 
they were <laughs> connecting with the wider audience. Sai, you talked passionately a bit for about Doctor Who connecting with the kids. And this clearly was. The kids obviously loved it. It was the best-selling toy. So clearly it was working. Um, you've also, you've already referenced the scene with um, Sally when um, the Doctor reinvigorate her emotions. That thing's a really sad scene. And again, you get the impact of conversion, as you do with the fact that Jackie gets converted. Our beloved Jackie Tyler, okay, maybe not us, the parallel world, but she's converted. It, it shows, I think it does lots to show the power and impact of the Cyberman. So I'm all for them. My second reason for keeping it in is they call them the Scooby Gang. I like the characters in this. You mentioned Mrs. Moore. I think she's a brilliant character. Mrs. Moore. <laughs> My name is Angela Price. <laughs> so I think it's really good. We get again compare that to Attack of the Sidemen. You actually care about Mrs. Moore. It's not like Brian Glover and oh, you Bates don't care and about that fella from Barker Grove, do you? Oh, I do oh, care about why, that guy from Barker Grove. Why is he acting? It's so embarrassing. <laughs> Who cares about his acting job? <laughs> and whilst we're on the fact, what about the Ricky Mickey torture scene? You know, I'm not a big fan of Mickey, but when he's strapped half naked to a chair, being tortured by himself. I told you he was that's kinky, some, didn't I? That's didn't some I? serious kink going on there. <laughs> uh, I agree. Ricky is, uh, sorry, yeah, Ricky is absolutely 2D. I mean, he is incredibly 2D. He's like one of Chloe Webber's drawings. He's not good. Pete and Jackie, I like the fact that we get, we don't get pantomime parallel world versions of them. We just get slightly shifted versions of them so tom mccray had originally written them really broadly and completely different and russell toned it in and said no they just need to be slightly different imagine that they've been like star trek you know evil lesbian versions of the characters that That was kind of how they were written oh amazing Um, that sounds great Um, but I think a lot of the characters, we do have empathy and understanding for them. So I like the characters. And I think this is a pretty good blockbuster. We've got, you know, the death of a TARDIS from a parallel world. We've got Zeppelins. We've got Batsy Power Station. We've got Night Shoots. We've got sewers full of Cybermen slowly twitching, coming to life. We've got the Cyber Controller climbing up a ladder to a Zeppelin with the flames going up. I think it's great. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to keep it in. I think it's a really fun 90 minutes. It's not the same level as Army of Ghost Doomsday because it hasn't got the heart but as a as a mid-season two-parter i think this is a pretty decent effort and i'm keeping it i've got three reasons to keep it and three reasons to not this was my most on the fence story of the entire season so i'm pleased we're ending here and you've got the deciding vote i do um my three reasons i don't like this this is that one episode i was telling you about where i think the music i do like the cyberman score that duh, 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 duh. that's great but all that syrupy music at the end when rose and mickey are saying goodbye it's like, duh, 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 duh. i'm like oh please just marry gold put the pedal on for a second will you um, so i i do think generally the music is too it's trying to be a big bombastic thriller but I don't know, like he's he's sabotaging the atmosphere rather than creating an atmosphere. It's a bit too much. Um, I hate the whole the stupid climax on the blimp with that that side control, the, the Lumix side man going up the ladder. Oh, it's a fucking campus thing we've seen since Horns and Nymon. It's so ridiculous. Um, so I really hate the ending, and I just hate all of what are the rebels called? The preachers. I hate all of them. 
I think the fella <laughs> Andrew Hayden Smith get back to presenting. Um, Noel Clark, you should be ashamed of yourself, sir. Like you can act, so I don't know what's going on. What is that mouth thing all about? I keep doing it. That sort of weird, like he's chewing on a sour toffee. It's really weird. Um, and Mrs. Moore, please. <laughs> I was cheering when she's like, "What the she doing? <laughs> Hanging out with those fucking kids?" <laughs> it's all very strange. Anyway, so I, those are the things I don't like. But I, I love uh, the fact that you said about Rose being awful at the beginning, Sai. But I love the punishment she gets. The, her fucking hubris that she can walk into her parallel parents' home and start talking personal with them. And when Jackie turns around to her and says, who the hell do you think you are? It's such a slap in the face moment for her. I love that scene so much. Um I think Graham Harper directs the build-up of the Cyberman review throughout the entire first episode brilliantly. He's doing the Douglas Canfield thing of showing bits and pieces, POV shots, and then the bit where they finally come st stomping across the grass, and he does like a... Um... What's it called? Like a fading, doesn't he? Where it just gets clearer and clearer and clearer. It's and the build up to that, no one can do it like Graham Harper, I don't think. And he does that extremely but well. That's kind of undercut by having seen them in the pre credits teaser. I that think. is true. That is true. You know, and I think that's a bit clunky as well. That if you're gonna have that big reveal, save it. Don't yeah. you didn't have them. the Zygons in the first scene, did you? No. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good point. Um, and I like Rodson, I loved all the mass conversions in episode two. It's the thing we don't lean into enough, and that is converting people on mass. And it's I said to Art, we'll watch it. This is the first time they've won. They've actually won. That's they've true. taken over the mm -hmm. earth, they're tearing people from their homes, marching them into Battersea Power Station. We've done it to ourselves because we put the technology in that allowed them to take us, which is exactly what we would do. So it has got a sort of a scary element to it. And they're being walked in and there's scenes of the things coming down, the lasers and the saws and all of that. But in part one, it's a bit cringe with um, In the Jungle playing and Oh, I love oh, that. The line sleeps oh, tonight, that. isn't it? Oh no, no. <laughs> yeah, because then he cuts to he cuts, no. you've got the music playing, no. and then he sort of does a pan across the pipes, and then you just hear someone go, Oh yeah. <laughs> so I take that that he's trying to drown out the sound of yeah. the, the people screaming. Yeah, well, he is. And he wants that loud, complete contrast to, to the horror. Yeah, going I on. just no, I don't, don't think know. it quite doesn't quite work. work. So maybe it's the choice of song mm. that that does it. It, it doesn't bring, bring me back. He doesn't strike me as an in the jungle sort of man. No, though. exactly. <laughs> what, did you, steps. what did you call him? Friend of Graham Harper. <laughs> <laughs> he looks like him a bit as well, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, he does. Maybe that's why Graham calls him in everything. <laughs> yeah. But Harper was a brilliant choice to bring back the Cybermen. Yes. And, and he does. Like the, the scenes down in the um, ice tunnels where they're all in the dark and we go past and it's all lit by by flashlights and they start coming to life that's really creepy so i think he does ah oh, their entrance when they smash through the windows and they're yeah, all shot good. from below uh, it's so dramatic that cliffhanger is brilliant and i know they are stomping around but it feels like there's thousands of the bloody things uh, walking around that house it's such a tough one because the Keep things it. i don't like annoy me and the things i love Oh, great. And everyone's been so mean about it, so I'm putting it through. Yeah. yeah. Everyone in the comments was mean about it as well. It, it is really flawed. Oh, I can see why somebody would go either way. But 
I think it's exciting enough. I think it's Harper. Harper's the one that takes it through. So we are on to round two. We've lost three <laughs> oh my stories. God. Oh my goodness. <laughs> three and a half hours in and we're on to round two. Don't worry. This only round lasts. two goes in about two seconds. <laughs> <laughs> so we've lost Fear Her, Girl in the Fireplace, yay, and New Earth. So we've got seven stories left. So let's spin the randomizer. We have Tooth and Camp suspense music. Okay. So we have Tooth and Claw versus The Impossible Planet. Oh, shine. No one wanted that. Let's start with Mark. Oh, this is such a tough decision. Um, Oh, because they are two of the best. Oh, but I think I'm going to go with my favourite type of Doctor Who, and Tooth and Claw is my favourite in the series. So, I'll say Tooth and Claw. Sigh. The Impossible Planet. My gut said that straight away as soon as that was announced. So that gets mine. The, Impo- the Impossible Planet is the closest uh, the new series ever got to the classic series. So, The Impossible Planet for me. And absolutely. Impossible planet for me oh. too. So, oh. It's such a great episode oh, as well. Tooth and Claw, if it had won this, would have been great. Yeah. So to- mm-hmm. Tooth and Claw has. Fa- I know we are very good at picking ones that aren't the norm, but yeah. Tooth and Claw has fallen. So we are now up. Idiot's Lantern plays. Love and Monsters. Well, I'm going first <laughs> on that. Love and Mon. I like Idiot's Lantern, but I love Love and Monsters. Joe. Love and Monsters. It's a it's an absolute classic. Sigh. Uh, much as I really enjoy watching the Idiot's Lantern, it's got to be Love and Monsters for me. And Mark. <laughs> you know what? I mean, they're both. They're both. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but actually, so your arguments about Love and Monsters, um, I would take on board. So I would. I would say Love and Monsters. So Idiot's Lantern falls. You see, we do go round, go through yeah. round two very yeah. quickly. We'll be in bed by 11, don't worry. <laughs> we'll be in bed by three minutes at this rate. <laughs> so we what, all now... together? Well, maybe not. <laughs> That's for the listener to make up their own mind. So we have Rise of the Cyberman against... Oh, it's giving me Rise of the Cyberman again. Impossible Planet. I've got a feeling this one's going to be quite easy. Mark? Yeah, it is. I mean, Impossible Planet has got to be. Sigh. Impossible Planet. Impossible Planet. And Impossible Planet for me, too. I so... think I know what's going to win this, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, Rise the Sidemen falls. So, we're down to five stories. Mm, there might still be a bit of contention. So, we have got, sorry, four stories. We've got Doomsday and Army of Ghosts against School Reunion. Sorry, we want to start with you on that one. Oh, look at his face. Look at his okay, face. Well, I'm, well, it's School Reunion because that's my favourite. Mark. Uh, well, I think I might have to say Doomsday on this one. <laughs> Joe? Just stick to my stick to my guns on that. Um, oh man, it's the two most emotional stories with the most emotionally gutting endings. Ah, oh, hope or loss? Hope or loss? Hope or loss? Hope. School reunion. Uh, I don't know on this one. <laughs> it's a real toughie, isn't it? I love both of them. 
I am going to go school reunion. <laughs> so school reunion is going through an army of ghosts. For wow. Us. So oh, we are man. left with just school reunion, impossible planet, and love of monsters. <laughs> oh, wow. So we got... would be my top three of this of the series. So. Yeah. Oh, so now we've drawn school reunion against love and monsters, and I'm going to go love and monsters. Joe. School reunion. Mark. It's a toughie for you. <laughs> oh. I mean, you didn't care for either of them. So. Well, no. Well, uh, what? Oh, this is really tough. I love all your indecision. It's given you, me lots of time to play my lovely music. Thank you. <laughs> uh, well, I think I'm going to have to go on what would I choose to go back and watch again. That doesn't help. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Neither of us. School reunion. School reunion oh. for me too. <laughs> Love and Monsters Falls. Oh, I'll tell you what, it. it did well though. I was hoping it that did. would be a favourite. I was hoping I was going to win. So we've got School Reunion and Impossible Planet as our final Oh, sorry, oh. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I knew it was... I had a feeling it was going to come down to these two. So, yeah. So we'll make you pick first. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, oh, Rod. <laughs> um, okay. I'm going to go with my heart, and I'm going with my Sarah Jane and K-9 and in School Reunion. Mark. I'm gonna have to go with what I think has the better overall story and ha oh well I was gonna say the one that has the most sort of more depth and layers, but they do both have that. But also the one that has more adventure and scares and I'm going to have to go with the Impossible Planet. Joe, one each. Yeah, well, my brain is telling me to go with the Impossible Planet because it is just so flawlessly done. But my heart is telling me to go with School Reunion because I love Elizabeth Sladen more than practically anything. Not everything, but practically <laughs> anything. Um, I'm going to go with School Reunion. Well... I think by that say I absolutely adore the impossible planet but it's Elizabeth Sladen and she was my guiding light throughout my youth so it's got to be Sarah Jane Smith. Hey! You've got one right at last. <laughs> <laughs> oh sorry Mark, you didn't like that one did you? So School Reunion wins the hamster vote for the best Series 2 story. A well-deserved winner. We do buck the trend. We're, we're not in line with the DWM polls at all, are we? No, why? What, 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 what came highest? Girl in the Fireplace? Uh, I think Girl in the Fireplace, Army yeah. of Ghosts and Doomsday? Probably, yeah. I think, I've, I think School Reunion, though, is a winner that is not an obvious choice, but people would go, oh, yeah, I can see why. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Except Mark. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think he's a big fan. So, 
all that reminds is for us to thank our guests for reaching that rather random conclusion. Uh, <laughs> gentlemen, you expected is there... something else? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> is there anything you would like to promote or plug? Let's start yeah. with Mark. Um, oh, well, you can find uh, my podcast, To Watch Who, at To Watch Who. Um, and yeah, check it out. <laughs> Mark, Mary, I hope she does the marketing for you. God, that was the most enthusiastic promotion of a podcast I've ever heard. Can I do it for him? It's a wonderful podcast featuring a non Doctor Who fan, Sarah and Mark. I thought I was Mark was a non Doctor Who fan. <laughs> when it comes to the new series, yes. Um, yeah, check it out. It's amazing. And sigh. Um, well, you can check out my podcast, uh, The Library of Impossible Things, where I talk to Doctor Who fans about their personal stories and their relationship with Doctor Who. And um, it's going very well, and people seem to be very much enjoying it. And hopefully the other two of you who haven't been on yet will be joining me at some point in the future. It's a lovely hybrid between Doctor Who and therapy. Yes. Bearing <laughs> <laughs> on the therapy a lot of the time, I think. <laughs> So oh, that's all dear. for us. Reminds so we need to tell you that in two weeks' time we are entering the black and white era for the first time on Strictly. Ooh. We are going for series season six with Patrick Troughton, uh, which will be very interesting. Some long stories for us to watch. Who's on uh, that one? We've got Gary Russell. Oh my word! And we've got Daniel Romsley. Oh, first time, first time. So, yeah, interesting combination. So we'll be tackling uh, Zoe, Jamie and the second Doctor. So all that remains for us to say tonight is thank you for listening and, and keep, keep listening. listening. I was going to say dancing. Sorry. No, <laughs> Good night, everyone. Bye.